Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Sergey Antano. That's written bankrupts and usurers of Imperial Russia, that's property and the law in the age of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, Harvard UP 2016. And this week we are going to discuss something I wanted to cover for quite a long time. We are going to discuss the Romanov dynasty of Russia. And of course in the traditions of the podcast, as we always begin with, how did you come to study? You mainly study focus on late Tsarist history, but we are going to be in this episode, going to focus from how the Romanov got to power and to until the chapter in the Great's reign. And the next week, we're going to discuss Paul I until Nicholas II. But of course, how did you begin study Tsarist history? Sure. Well, hello, Ireland, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, and uh, the, so the response to that is uh, I'm a legal historian, uh, and uh, I heard uh, like tw- over 20 years ago, I was actually a lawyer in New York City, uh, but I always knew I wanted to do history. I wanted to be a professional historian uh, for a very long time. And uh, sort of the subject, the historical subject that attracted me was Russian law. Uh, and uh, it was immediately obvious to me that, uh, you know, like anybody who does read classical Russian literature uh, knows that there were these amazing trials uh, with a lot of emotion, public participation, juries, uh, just all the famous literary figures like, you know, Dostoevsky uh, were writing about that. And I, and I wanted to learn more uh, about that world. Uh, this is a little bit of an unusual career path. Uh, I would say a lot more of my colleagues uh, or historians of Russia, uh, they, they focus on the Soviet Union and the 20th century. Uh, and uh, to me, the feeling was that the, the the feeling that I had was that I really needed to understand uh, so how we came to you know, 1917 and the Soviet transformation, uh, and especially in terms of institutions, law, power, and government. I felt like I really wanted to know uh, how all of these things worked under the Tsars. Uh, so that's uh, kind of a brief answer. So, of course, most people think that Peter I or Peter the Great if you will, was the first Romanov, because most people, most historians in the work, begin usually when they write Romanov history, begin with Peter I, but as a matter of fact, there were two Romanovs before Peter the Great, who's not so well known. And we know to begin with how the Romanovs came to power, and I would also like to address that they were present in the court, even Russian court, even before they came to power for quite a long time, weren't they? Yes, absolutely, and uh... The sort of the Romanov dynasty. I mean, who they basically were. I mean, to be to be basically blunt, uh, they, they they were essentially a boyar family, and a boyar b o y a r is just a Russian term for an aristocrat. 
so this is basically like old, old Russian entrenched aristocracy. And there were, you know, several hundred of the sort of various clans and family groups. And the Romanovs uh, was just a, one of the many, 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 uh, many sort of trees, uh, many branches on the trees. And, um, and one of them, uh, Anastasia, was uh, uh, actually married to Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible. Um, so somebody from that clan. And, and so basically the Romanovs had these kind of connections uh, with the ruling circles you know, for, for quite a long time. But to be absolutely uh, sort of clear about this, they were not like uh, you know, super duper influential. Like they were not like anywhere within like the top dozen of families. They were, you know, they were just out there, uh, but they were not calling the shots, let's put it this way, until the early... Um, 17th century. So how did it come? Because as you know, it even the terrible died and we had a times of troubles, as yes. I know. So how did the Romanos come to power? Because yes. as as well you said they weren't really influential. So how did they learn to say it's a pretty this way, for lack of better words, learn themselves into yes. becoming the ruling dynasty all the way into the early 20th century? So there are really two aspects to that. So for centuries, uh, the sort of the land that we know of today as Russia uh, went through all kinds of different configurations. But um, but but for centuries, uh, that that part of the world was seen as a, let's put it this way, a, like a domain of one particular family. Uh, we call it dynasty today, um, but back then I think they thought more of like a family of rulers. Um, that that came back from the mythical Rurik Rurik prince, uh, Prince Rurik from uh, 9th century, and historians are still arguing whether he actually came from Scandinavia, uh, or but clearly from some part in the, of the Baltic. Uh, and essentially, people who were ruling Russia or Rus uh, claimed some claimed descent from him. And by the time of the early 17th century, there were you know hundreds and hundreds of these people. And most of them um, you know, had some kind of uh, title, a title of a prince, especially. Uh, but uh, only sort of the senior, sort of the, the senior ruling branch that died out uh, uh, during the time of troubles, you know, they actually by, you know, by the late, uh, by the late uh, 16th century, like actually had a viable claim that they were going to rule. But at the same time, there are several families that are, they think of themselves as, almost as senior, definitely more senior than the Romanovs, right? And so the question is, when the time of troubles was over, uh, when sort of the Moscow ruling elites kind of worked their issues, when it became clear that the Polish prince, you know, Vladislav, uh, wasn't after all going to be really uh, allowed to hold a throne in Moscow. So so the, you know, the, the basically the the boyars, the the, the princes, uh, aristocrats, they tried to figure out who they were going to put uh, on the throne. Um, they've tried several different families previously. The Godunov, uh, they tried the Shuskis, uh, but they basically came up with somebody who they thought wasn't going to be a big threat to them. Uh, so that's kind of like the second answer. So first of all, there is this idea that the sort of the imperium, right, the sort of the the the, the state uh, in Russia belongs to a certain group of people and the second is that they chose the one who was the least the least threatening 
Uh, now, Mikhail was just a teenager. He was this young guy, didn't really uh, show the Mikhail, Mikhail Romanov, the very first Romanov Tsar, wasn't really a big personality, but his father was. His father, who was the you know, Filaret, um, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, was a, was kind of basically the ruler behind the scenes uh, for a very long time. So, so that, that that I hope that that kind of begins to explain what is a a really complex um, complex history. Now, a lot of the historians, and that's probably why they choose to begin with Peter the Great. They kind of paint Mikhail and his successor just a second here. But I need to make sure I get the name right. Alexis, they, that they paint them kind of as irrelevant, but, but they are the first one, of nonetheless, that makes history relevant, so to speak. But what you, when we spoke pre before the podcast, you disagree that they were, were they are not really irrelevant. So what? So how oh, was yes. the reign like, and the, for, for the mm -hmm. first two Romanovs up until Peter the Great? Absolutely. Or even we want to say the first three Romanovs, uh, because so, so first there was Mikhail, uh, then there was Mikhail's, uh, and and Mikhail reigned from uh, sixteen thirteen until I think was it sixteen forty five um something like that, and then. Uh, there was Alexei, uh, who was Peter the Great's father, and then the third Romanov was Peter the Great's older brother, Fyodor, who basically died as a teenager. He was a no sickly uh, character, uh, but at the same time, um, Alexei and Fyodor were extremely important. Now, just to sort of explain to you why we we we're thinking, well, a lot of sort of people think today that oh, okay, the Romanovs begin with Peter the Great. It wasn't really. Any kind of you know Western conspiracy against Russia. It wasn't anything like that. It was really uh, sort of Russian historians themselves who were you know trying to come up with a kind of vision of Russian history um, that you know that 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 they wanted to uh, kind of project publicly. And so it was the Russian historians in the 19th and then also the 20th century uh, who kind of glorified Peter the Great, you know, so much that everything before Peter. Uh, they were trying to, um, you know, make it look like it was all, you know, backward, barbaric, you know, Asiatic and so on. Uh, but to tell you the truth, uh, even, you know, Peter himself and all of his, uh, you know, his leading statesmen, you know, they were very aware that uh, most of the things that they uh, did, most of the reforms uh, that they carried out in the early 18th century, they were first introduced by Peter's father. Uh, in the second half of the 17th century, I think it's very clear that, you know, there's this kind of German uh, term, Satellite, uh, meaning like the time of transition. And there were like two, I would say, in this early early Imperial Russian history, two like really important transitional periods. One was the 15th century, when the Russians decided that they wanted to have a particular kind of state, you know, an imperial, militaristic, sort of very tightly centralized kind of state. So that was the first period. And the second one was under Peter's father um, when the Russians decided that they were going to have, again, go back to this very organized, very focused, uh, you know, autocratic, I would say autocratic uh, regime uh, where basically the top, you know, top figures, aristocrats, boyars and so on, you know, they would have some power, but they would not call the shots, right? So... Uh, and and this is basically the kind of transformation that Alexei uh, presided over. But I could give you a sort of a very long list of what he's done. But you know, stop me if you want. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, like for example, one key um, item, uh, a regular army, right? That supposedly Peter the Great had created, 
and, you know, that, that's quite a bit misleading because actually uh, there were two or three attempts um, uh, to do so. One was in the, during the time of troubles. The other one was in the 1630s uh, when um, Moscow was fighting a war against Poland. Uh, and then finally, the most successful attempt was under Alexei, uh, who basically started uh, kind of European-style regiments, and they were basically there to stay. And under Peter the Great, they were gradually you know, renamed and reorganized. But like the idea was that you are going to have a standing army uh, officered and trained according to kind of Western European manuals. Uh, no, that that all comes from the 1650s. Like that all comes from, you know, 50 years before Peter the Great uh, uh, did his stuff. So the military part is just one small example. Uh, but even cultural influences, uh, if you look at uh, his kind of contemporary depictions of Tsar, like say, you know, he's dressed up in this traditional Muscovite robes, right? So you think, hi, ah, he's like this sort of religious guy who just sits in his palace, right? Uh, like, like, like sort of an icon of some kind. And I know that's very misleading. He was actually very hands-on. Um, I mean, they called him Alexei the Quiet, but it was more of a um, kind of like an ironic sort of uh, name. I mean, he was very forceful, you know, not like Peter, but a you know, very forceful guy. Uh, liked to go to battle. Uh, and uh, he was very much, you know, welcoming to uh, welcoming Western European culture, except that as, as you know, Ivan the Terrible uh, and Mikhail, uh, uh, like, for example, you know, that Ivan the Terrible's mother um, was um, a Lithuanian uh, princess, um, basically kind of uh, brought up in this kind of Western uh, culture. Uh, so, so in other words, they, they were, you know, but by, by the kind of West uh, that the Russians were dealing with in the 16th and 17th century, it was basically Polish culture. So it wasn't the Dutch or the German culture or the English culture, right? So Peter the Great had in his head, you know, the Dutch and German models, and Peter's father had, you know, Polish models. Um, so there, so under uh, Alexei, uh, the Russians, you know, they started a newspaper, they had theater, uh, a lot of uh, Russian aristocrats were already dressed in uh, Western European outfits. Uh, now they had collections of Western books, and they taught their children you know, Polish, Latin, German, um, and so on. And this is where my kind of transition comes in, because um, Alexei's older son, Fyodor, who was indeed sickly and who did indeed die young after just ruling for a few years, he was just kind of like a Peter the Great uh in a sort of a better version, basically, you know, he was a nicer guy. Let's put it this way. Uh, no, had a yeah, I, I started to stop you right there, but because you mentioned Fyodor, and uh, and that's been like this is perfect translation because according to a Norwegian historian on who writes about the Russian and uh, Russian Empire, he mentioned that he had a co-rule with Peter at the time when he then come to power. That this hasn't happened before. In that this was really unique in Europe. That the, 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 for the first time there were two rulers on the same throne through two brothers oh. at the same time, if, if, the, if that's correct. So, was it really that, that right. unique that they both would be co rulers? Yes, this is actually gets even more complicated. So, there were basically three brothers. So, yeah. so right. So, first it was Fyodor, he was the older brother, right? Uh, and he uh, ruled from um, 1776 uh, until uh, 1780. Uh, I'm sorry, 1676 to uh, 1682, and then he died. And then there were two younger brothers, Pyotr 
and Ivan, or Ivan V as he was known, who did in fact became core rulers, uh, which was basically a result of uh, you know the palace you know palace maneuverings and palace intrigues. Uh, the okay, but so so I'll get to I'll get to these younger guys in a moment. But first, I just want to say that you know Fyodor was uh, kind of like a very promising guy. He had even though he was very young, he was very like he had like a very sort of forceful personality. He was like very conscious of like his duty to be he's kind of like a hands-on ruler he was very well educated you know was very familiar with uh western culture um was very literate um so so very 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 promising um except that like i said you know he died young uh but but this does show you the, the kind of court culture that existed in this late muscovite period where it wasn't all it was not at all about like you know guarding yourself from evil western influence is quite the opposite it was all about sort of opening yourself up uh, and just like seeing what the latest models were uh, and, and and in the similar vein um you know peter or peter of the future peter the great and uh, his core ruler for a few years um ivan v you know they were also kind of brought up like i mean they were also brought up uh to be you know not just kind of figureheads but to be basically acquainted uh, with you know with with languages uh, to be acquainted with you know what what kind of Western what Western European culture was supposed to be. Uh, now now here's the trick though. So from the very beginning, you know, when the two boys Peter and Ivan, when when they were very young, it was clear that the future Peter the Great was a lively, intelligent little thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, Ivan the Fifth just didn't look as promising. Let's put it this way. I mean, he would you know he would grow up and you know have children. You know, his daughter would become the empress later on. Uh, his uh, um, descendant of his other child would also rule Russia for a brief period of time. So, so like Ivan was a real person. He wasn't just some kind of, uh, uh, you know, disabled uh, kind of man. But he wasn't nearly as promising as Peter. And so the idea was to just put Peter on the throne by himself. But however, because there were, you know, the way Muscovite Russia was run is that there were, uh, all this, you know, various court factions, various boyar clans who were fighting each other for influence, then there was basically a riot. Uh, and so Peter's supporters were forced to uh, to basically share power mm. with, uh, with, with Ivan's supporters. Mm. Just to make this, I mean, I don't think there's any easier, easier way to put this, but just because that's what we have. We have these faction politics uh, and various boyar clans. And you mentioned European influence, and I'm sure we'll get back to this eventually. But uh, but mm -hmm. when you see look at Saint Petersburg, it is clear that Peter the Great or Peter he was very heavily influenced by European towns when he built it. So it's clear that the European influence was still welcome. And as you know, French would be the language of the court that people would speak at the time, at least for a very 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 long time in the Catherine the Great as well. So it's clear that European influence was really for a long time, uh, welcome in, into the yes. Russian world. Absolutely. Uh, later on, especially in the in the middle of the 18th century, it is true that uh, Russian aristocracy basically learned French, and uh, this kind of court culture became francophone. Now, earlier in the 18th century, I mean, German was very, very important. Uh, and uh, in as to the sort of early years of Peter the Great, uh, I mean, they would learn. A lot of people would learn Polish, people would learn um, German, people would learn, you know, to some extent, you know, Latin. There was even this, um, like a 
first important institution of higher learning in this kind of late Muscovite period it was known as Slavic Latin and Greek Academy. Uh, now, there's one actually really important point here uh, that I think I have to mention uh, is that um, yet another important introduction by uh, Tsar Alexei was, of course, to incorporate about half of what is today's Ukraine into the Russian Empire. Okay, uh, And so when uh, Ukrainian Cossacks rebelled against the King of Poland in the 1640s, they kind of tried to kind of figure out, like they tried to have their own independent state and that wasn't going to work. They tried to uh, go over to the Crimean Tatars um, and, and their overlords, the Ottomans. Uh, but eventually it turns out that the Russian Tsar was the best bet, right? And so there was this kind of a union uh, with obviously Muscovy, Muscovite Russia as the senior partner. Um, lots of warfare, just very bloody period of Eastern European history. Uh, but basically, uh, in the mid-1650s, about what is known as the left bank Ukraine, right? In other words, everything that was on the eastern side of the Dnieper River was joined uh, to, um, to the Russian state. And the result of that is that there were these large numbers of, uh, I guess, proto-Ukrainian, we can put it, uh, you know, nobles, but also churchmen, you know, intellectuals. Uh, a lot of them were educated in Western Europe, like in Rome, for example, where there was like a separate, uh, even like a separate college for training Eastern European clergy. Um, so, so a lot of these people ended up in Moscow and kind of like bringing, bringing this kind of new cultural influences with them also. Right, so so that's I think I needed to point at that point that yeah. out. And and you mentioned the Cossack revolt, and of course I I mentioned this before I think, but you know one of the re reasons I believe that Putin used to justify his invasion to use to compare to modern to the today is that the, when the Cossacks signed their deal with the Saint sorry Moscow Saint Petersburg wasn't created yet, but when they signed the deal, they would indefinitely tie their bounds mm -hmm. to to you. Russia and this, I believe, you Putin uses today as well to imagine. Oh, they signed a deal in that Ukraine indefinitely, and it still counts. That is that's partly why he uses this justification for his current invasion of Ukraine, right? Well, there's a there's a long list, right? Uh, <laughs> but but in terms of just you know, if we if we kind of um, leaving leaving out the sort of the rhetoric and ideology for the moment, but just in pure practical terms of empire building. Mm. This was a, you know, if you get this kind of, you know, cultured, prosperous, uh, very numerous uh, bunch of people under your control. So after the 1650s, uh, Russia was a very different state, mm. like a very different culture. Um I mean, I think it's just like, that's just kind of like different, uh, difficult, it's impossible to deny that. Um, but nothing in terms of justifications for the invasion, that would have to be, it have to be different podcast, <laughs> uh, a big yeah. subject. But let's go back to Peter. I'm sorry for this, a little bit, but just, uh, you mentioned the a revolt, and I do believe this is the one you referred to, where in Moscow, and Peter, Peter himself, he would resent, he wasn't very fond of that. Moscow, which is part, which is partly why he founded Saint Petersburg later on, but there was a revolt, I believe, where they almost brought, went into the palace where where they lived. But the, his mother, I think, 
brought both of the sons out, I believe the story goes, to the terrace, and she talked to the crowd that she calmed them down. So that's one of the reasons, I think, why why Peter was sent to, and later on built St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great uh, point that you're making, because uh, if you think, like, if you're if you had to uh, rule uh, Russia in the early 18th century, and I think like pretty much any sane person would think, okay, uh, I would build maybe a port city, maybe a fortress, uh, you know, in the middle of these swamps of Ingria, right? Mm. Or Ijora, Ijora, uh, as the Russians called it earlier. But uh, but yeah, like why would you want to build this sort of giant capital, uh, which you know to this day, right, is extraordinarily important mm-hmm. economically and uh, politically in all kinds of ways. Uh, but Peter the Great uh, did, in fact, you know, before he became the Great, uh, did in fact face you know a lot of resistance, a lot of uprisings, just in every possible way. That's just included. I mean, that did include his um, military forces, his musketeers. Uh, that also involved a lot of Cossacks uh, in the south, uh, in what today is uh, you know Ukraine and South Russia. Um, so, so there there was a lot of dissent. Um, it, it was a very violent, unstable, um, basically society. Uh, one issue that heavily contributed to all that unrest was the church schism. Uh, that uh, also started under Peter the Great's father. Just so you get like one extra <laughs> that, that that we have to to uh, to thank Alexei for. Uh, so part of Alexei's program of state building, um, he and his um, patriarch, head of the church, uh, Nikon N I K O N, uh, basically they they carried out this kind of like a worship a liturgy reform. Uh, they basically wanted to upgrade church books. Uh, to sort of eliminate the inaccuracies and also correct certain bits of ritual that, you know, unless you are actually an active practicing Orthodox Christian, this really, this really doesn't sound as like super important, like which way you circle the altar and how many fingers you use to cross yourself. Um, however, this was just kind of the top of the iceberg because at stake was really like who gets to control spirituality uh, religious life, right? You know, something was really, really important in the 17th century, uh, and to what extent, like this, these issues can be just, you know, can be reorganized and restructured at the sovereign's command. It was a really, really big deal, and as a result, uh, there was a very large following in the Orthodox Church that rejected the reform uh, and started the, the alternative, what is known today as the old belief movement, old believers. Uh, that are still very active, you know, they exist, um, uh, and they were extremely active in the 17th and early 18th century, and so a lot of the musketeers who rebelled against Peter the Great, a lot of the Cossacks who rebelled against Peter the Great, they were old believers. They rejected this kind of state intrusion in their spiritual life, uh, and uh, they thought, they basically thought the Tsar was Antichrist, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Hmm. So, no, no. so that's... So sorry for the, if I interrupted you, but uh, let, let's talk about because in, you mentioned his mili- military reforms, and uh, one of the things Peter I think is unique for is that he, as a child, he created this, and it was very interesting in the sea as well as you now he would build, I believe, the first navy with in Russia, and it was very, he was so excited about sailing ships and so on. But one of the unique things I think about his childhood is that he created this. So it's began as a play regiment 
with Marnie's closest friend, and it kind of grew and grew. Mm-hmm. And he would later, he would, he would not style himself general at first. He would, you know, kind of uh, begin from the bottom and then promote himself further on as a gain experience. And you know, and later on, this with this regiment, we believe, would become very important and vital to the Russian military. Yes, absolutely. That is a sort of a very good issue to get into because, uh, I mean, both the Navy and the Imperial Guard. Um, so the, I mean, it's kind of ironic because Russia is mostly a land country, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But like to this day, in terms of, you know, if we think just in terms of, you know, security, uh, as a sort of a, you know, as a policy issue, as a historical issue, uh, you know, Russia just like it cannot be militarily secure without a competent navy and that's kind of ironic uh, even you know during world war ii when um you know the soviet union was invaded you know by land right uh, by the uh by the nazi germany and its allies um the various weaknesses in the naval area were just very 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 severe both in the black sea in the arctic in the baltic uh, it's just it's a whole separate story and so this was also the case in the 17th century when uh, the only access to the sea that Russia had was uh, through, you know, through the White Sea, right, uh, through uh, very extreme north uh, that basically freezes over most of the year. Uh, historically, the lands ruled by these kind of what we call Russian, quote unquote, uh, princes had access to the Baltic Sea through the land uh, around what today is St. Petersburg. And until the early 17th century, when after the time of troubles, it was basically kind of like a Kind of a concession to Sweden to kind of like leave the Russians alone, right? Um, now, look, this does not mean that uh, I don't want to be very clear about this. This doesn't mean that that the the Russians were just kind of completely blocked from outside trade. This does not mean that Peter the Great, you know, urgently needed to get access to the sea as some kind of window to the West, because let's put it uh, this way: you know, Sweden was perfectly happy to provide that kind of window. Um, there were, you know, there were certain strategic questions because whenever, uh, you know, whenever there was some kind of warfare uh, on Russia's western borders, it would be really easy to block, you know, all kinds of supplies going in uh, through, you know, from Western Europe. Like, for example, say you wanted to purchase weapons or, or hire some, um, you know, mercenaries in the West, it would be very easy to block their, uh, you know, their arrival uh, to Russia. And remember, this is 17th, 18th century. Like the idea of a modern nation at arms, a standing army, still doesn't quite exist. Basically, whenever a war starts, the first thing you do is you hire a bunch of officers, right? You hire officers in the Russian situation. A lot of them are going to be foreigners. Uh, and then you give them commissions. And then these officers raise their regiments. You know, this kind of like harm how the arm, an army worked in the 18th century. And so to have access to trade, uh, to this kind of access to military goods to say purchasing guns hiring uh personnel and it was really really a key strategic issue um so peter the great was not the first one to come up with the idea that oh russia needs a navy uh probably the first um kind of like the first real example of that was under ivan the terrible in the mid 16th century when he hired a whole fleet by uh run by danes basically by the danes he was allied with the danes uh, who were just kind of privateering in the Baltic for him. Uh, and then Peter's father, again, we're going back to Peter's father. He actually did try to build a navy, uh, but because he didn't really have any good sea to build it on, he built it on the Volga River uh, that had access to the Caspian Sea. And from the Caspian Sea, you could 
sailed to Iran. So it was an important trade route. So there were, you know, so there were like several boats that were built uh, and they were burned by rebels. So it was an unsuccessful experiment. And so Peter just kind of like inherited this awareness that if you want to be a great ruler, you needed to build boats. So so that's one part of it. And we I'm you know happy to talk more about naval issues if you uh, no, that's where you want to go. I'm but, afraid, but I'm afraid we don't have the time. Yeah, it's too much. But but the Imperial Guard is the other thing. Yes, and I think you're absolutely right. It started. Look, I mean, every European country had an Imperial Guard of some kind. But like in Russia, it was much more important than just a bunch of elite soldiers who guarded the ruler. It was this kind of like a state within a state almost, right? So they started out as just basically basically being uh, Peter's, uh, you know, the kind of his followers, almost his bodyguards in a sense. Uh, just basically, they, they then people to whom he could give an important mission. Say, like, if he wanted to send an important embassy to, I don't know, Iran, for example, uh, you're going to get one of the Imperial Guard officers. Uh, he's going to go and do it. And and so, as these people matured and got experience, they became this kind of core of the uh, sort of of later Petrine uh, military force, officers, elite soldiers. Uh, just kind of yeah, they're really sort of the heart of the military. It's it's kind of like both uh, the Rangers and the Green Berets and the Marines in today's U.S. military put together. Just kind of people that who basically underpinned Peter's power. Like I hope that explains it a little bit. So something as well we have to talk about is what he's because we mentioned European influence and one of the things that Peter chooses to do is to travel incognito in Europe and goes to among Amsterdam and I, I find it rather amusing that shows when he was in Amsterdam because as again we mentioned boat buildings and learned the boat craft there and it was not to be, to be referred to as he would refuse to mm -hmm. answer to Sir, Sir, Sir Peter would be called Carpenter Peter, which I find rather, rather amusing. And he, was, yeah. he as well would visit Paris and Amsterdam. So let's talk about his journey because yes. it does become important to him later as well, his journey to Europe. Absolutely. That's a wonderful question, really. And maybe we can sort of go back to it over and over again because there were other Russian rulers mm. who would do similar things, you know, in part inspired by Peter the Great. But yes, so... Peter, Peter did go uh, when he was very, very young. Um, was it 1697, 98, I believe is the year. Um, I may be just off by one or two years, but uh, basically he's still very young. He's just seized the throne recently in his own name from his older sister, who was a regent. Never mind, it's a long story. But, mm. uh, but, yeah, but a, a Russian ruler just kind of going to Europe as a private person, I mean, it was really, really just kind of earth-shattering. It was, you know, unprecedented. Um, earlier Tsars, they would have taken to the field as, you know, commanders. You know, Ivan the Terrible did it. Uh, Alexei did it. Um, you know, Ivan III in the 15th century did it. But to actually, like, go to Western Europe, and especially go as a private person, that's really just, I mean, no, it's no surprise that there were all kinds of conspiracy theories um, that, that appeared later on that no, real Peter the Great was murdered and by the Dutch. And they sent an imposter in <laughs> instead, uh, which you know is not what happened, right? Uh, so, first thing, first thing is that everybody knew that it wasn't just some random dude traveling mm. to Australia. Everybody knew that. It was I mean, it's a too, it is too big to be really into, into Pornito, right? Yeah, 
Oh, yeah, no, everybody knew. But the second thing, he didn't just like travel by himself, right? It was the so-called Grand Embassy. So it was a big embassy of, you know, Russian boyars and clerks and diplomats who went to Europe to drum up an alliance uh, against the, the Ottoman Empire, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so because, you know, the Turks were the big enemies to a lot of European countries, you know, they besieged Vienna just very recently at that point. Uh, it was kind of like the last sort of surge of the Ottoman expansion into Europe. And so Peter had all the reason to expect that he would find some allies uh, that would allow him to kind of fight off this Ottoman onslaught again in what today is Ukraine that was ongoing at that time. Uh, so, so Peter was hoping to find allies. And so the idea was is that the, the premise, the, the, the legend was that, that he was just this uh, uh, a regular nobleman who was just attached to the embassy. Right. So so that was the idea. But but he wasn't just like putting his life in danger or anything like that. Right. He you know had bodyguards and friends and, and, and boyars and advisors. And so nobody was under any illusion who he was. Uh, so so that's just kind of one one issue. The second issue, and I think it's very important, is just we have to like realize that you know people in the 18th century, uh, they were kind of like us in many ways, but they were also different in many ways. And so this idea of a ruler, you know, having a hobby. Uh, a, a ruler of a country who liked woodwork, right? This is really nothing unusual to us today, right? I mean, Abdul Hamid II as well in, in the late 19th century was a great woodworker, and that was his passion as well to mention. Another, someone else, another ruler that had a hobby that's kind of similar yeah. in the woodworking. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, so like having those kind of activities, that it was really sort of really just uh, part of this early enlightenment sort of outlook like he was supposed to have some kind of practical hand-on experience and you see it over and over again but it's not just that um i want to like draw this sort of longer picture from peter the great in this early years to say peter the great's all drunken assembly mm. right which is we you know we can mention if you want right now yeah. Uh, which was basically these really bizarre rituals when they would peter the great would dress some of his courtiers as this kind of like fake clergy uh supposedly making fun of the catholic clergy but like it's not very clear that the russians around him understood all the hell all the issues so right so to us it looks like really bizarre thing so these at least several hundred of these guys with peter uh, at their head you know they get really drunk uh, and they dress up uh, in these bizarre costumes and they have these bizarre mock rituals quasi mock religious rituals so like why in the world people would do that right and 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 there's this um yeah sort of a book about france you know in a slightly early period by uh, robert darnton it's called uh, darnton <laughs> it's called the great cat massacre it basically just shows that you know people in the early era i mean they were still you know intelligent interesting creative people but like some of the practices and ideas and things people found fun or funny you know they're different from things that we find fun or funny today right and, and so I mean, this goes even back to the 70s right people things that were funny even just as not as far as the 70s are not funny today necessarily yes it's a good so you don't point have to, you exactly. don't have to go far back yes you know, exactly. humor has changed <laughs> yes exactly right so like these kind of things change uh considerably uh, and so we, so so we really shouldn't be surprised that like a ruler of a vast empire, you know, goes dresses up as this normal outfits, works as a carpenter somewhere. Then he goes to England and you know trashes his 
uh, place mm-hmm. where he's staying. I mean, it was just the normal. That's what 18th century people did. <laughs> I want to say that. Uh, but but also this old drunken assembly. That's also just to have this kind of bizarre rituals. It really wasn't, you know, you know, it really wasn't anything uh, particularly out of the ordinary. And, and from uh, there, again, we even... I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but something we should mention as well. And this was really uncommon at court either. That was. He was fond of dwarves as well, or little people, if you yeah. will. There were, were a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe so kind of functioning as jesters in a way to amuse. And again, yes. we have to take, take a look at this in, in a 17th Absolutely. century perspective. But at, and, and that time, of course, it was more amusing for them. Not not like today, where mm-hmm. we have a different view, of course, where we, they are different no. for the expression for the lack of better words, like us. They, but, they, you know, but then there were there were different view on dwarfism mm-hmm. and if you were yeah. people as well because they were really high mm-hmm. in court as well. Absolutely right. So today, like we are, don't think that you know people having people with disabilities you know mm-hmm. beat each other up in front of you that it's particularly a funny, no. humorous uh, activity. Or uh, but but like you said, we we don't necessarily have to go all the way back to the 18th century. Um, you know, look at, for example, various ethnographic museums, quote unquote, that existed, you know, all over Europe until, you know, very quite recently, actually, where you had like entire like families and villages. And circus your... in the thirties were full of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you had a whole like villages of uh, you know people from you know Africa or mm. South America, from Southeast Asia, would be just transported to I don't know Belgium. Uh, and uh, that was supposed to be this like big attraction, right? Um, mm. sort of existed you know, all over the Western world, quote, world, quote unquote. But in the 18th century, uh, in whether it's you know Russia, or Western Europe, there was this very bizarre, <laughs> mm. a, a bizarre approach to entertainment. We'll put it this way. And when we talk about the Ice House and uh, Empress Anna after Peter the Great, uh, uh, that's just a continuation. Uh, continuation of this sort of a very different understanding of power entertainment uh emotion uh, imagery um we can sort of go on more about it if you want of course unfortunately we don't we have a lot of history to cover so and i'm doing plan to cover most of this eventually on the podcast individually so we don't have time to cover everything of course sure. but it did it did get a lot out, out of europe and i think paris especially and i wish i believe st petersburg is kind of modeled a little bit after so let's let's talk about the next big thing that happens, which is of course another Swedish king that will be his bitterest enemy named Charles the Twelfth, who mm-hmm. became a power the warrior known as the warrior king in Scandinavia. And he of course the Swedish Empire had colonies in Germany as well at this time, I believe. And he was mm-hmm. really the first king to try to invade Russia, wasn't he? Charles XII, that started the Great Nordic War, which was the next big yes. in Peter's life. Right, well, there's sort of two things there. Uh, one is, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of leading an army in battle personally, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember whether during uh, the reign of, like, Ivan the Terrible or during the time of Troubles, uh, well, I mean, Stefan Batori, the king of Poland, uh, did invade Russia in, uh, what was it, 60, uh, in 15, you know, in 15... Um, uh, late 1560s or early 1570s, uh, there was there were some you know, major sieges and battles uh, that ended kind of like more or less in a draw because he didn't really he recovered uh, the lands that Ivan the Terrible was occupying but failed to capture anything new. 
so there was some precedence for that, but that's uh, like you point out uh, was a you know a long time ago by that point. Uh, so I'd say you know like Stefan Batori was I think the first um, uh, the first example of that. Uh, but Charles um, the twelfth, uh, yeah, I mean he indeed wanted to do more than just capture a few cities. He mm. uh, just he actually decided to march on Moscow. Uh, now, now the second thing is that he didn't actually start the war. The war believe it or not, uh, was started by Peter and his allies. Because if you remember, when he went on that grand embassy uh, to Europe to try to raise an, uh, an alliance to fight the Turks, uh, actually nobody was interested in fighting the Turks anymore. However, there were a lot of uh, uh, volunteers to take on the Swedes, who at that point, ironically, and I'm not a Swedish historian, but my understanding is that Sweden had been in a bit of a decline by that time for quite some time. And uh, we should mention Howard... as well that no power really liked Sweden very much. They were exactly. It was if it was a TV show, it would be everybody hates Sweden pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. exactly. and we should mention as well, and though it wasn't very useful alliance, that though it's an unlikely alliance, that Sweden actually had an alliance with the Ottoman Empire, whom Peter wanted to fight against. Yes, absolutely right. So I mean, historically, by that by that point, the Ottoman Empire was. Uh, allied or at least partnered with France, right? And the French mm. were essentially, they were, you know, bankrolling the Swedes. They were, you know, paying for the Swedish army, uh, giving a lot of subsidies. So it was like this kind of bigger European politics that we see at play. Uh, but but yeah, so uh, Sweden's uh, neighbors, you know, the Poles hate the Swedes because the Swedes invaded the Poles earlier and kind of like trashed the whole country. Uh, the Danes obviously... Uh, I hate the Swedes because the Danes used to be the big boys in the Baltic region until they were displaced by the Swedes. Uh, so, and then, you know, Peter the Great wants his access to the Baltic back. So it was a pretty, not much a no-brainer to put together a coalition. And the Swedes, uh, they were on the one hand, like they were weak enough that all these people thought, ha, huh, now we can take on Sweden. On the other hand, there was this like last one big surge so like you no know, Charles Carl the eleventh uh, was like well, tried to kind of tr uh, no what I'm saying he's his predecessor all right, all right. tried yeah. tried to rebuild try to rebuild Swedish power and that's what Carl uh, the twelfth um, inherited uh, so that in other words everybody resents the Sweden they think they can take it on but they also are a little scared that it's going to come back and rebuild its power and so they all basically ganged up um, against uh, the Swedes and attacked from. Uh, various directions. Now we should also mention as well that the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, of course, people were interested in having their influence whenever elections for a Polish king was. And mm -hmm. Russia, of course, at this time did have a little influence over Poland. So, but even Charles XII, that when he, under his invasion, he managed to put a king on the Polish throne, at least for a brief moment, on mm -hmm. that is on the Swedish side, or for, yeah. even for a little while. Yeah, so, so that's that's actually also a very great point because uh, uh, the first uh, few years of the Great Northern War that began in 1700, you now that it went very very badly for the Russians, as we know, right? So so basically Charles the Twelfth, uh, first he defeats the Danes like momentarily, very quickly, you know, with English help, of course, the English and, and Dutch help, uh, but then uh, he quickly moves uh, and defeats the Russians. Uh, but but he really thinks that the Poles are the main danger. Yeah. Uh, and so his main effort is in Poland. And then he goes uh, and defeats the Poles and their, you know, their allies, Sac you know, Saxons, because, you know, Saxonia was... Uh,
kind of had a personal union, right? Uh, uh, so in other words, the sort of the Grand Elector of Saxony was also the king of Poland, right? Augustus, uh, August, I guess that's what we call it. Uh, so so there's this is kind of like frenzy of military action, uh, and uh, Charles indeed kind of deposes uh, deposes um, uh, the existing king of Poland uh, for a while, and uh, and then then that sort of like the real struggle with the Russians begins because uh, uh, Peter the Great assembled another army, moved it to uh, moved it to what today is Belarus. Uh, and uh, there were several battles that again went, went very badly for the Russians, uh, and that's when Charles decided, hmm, you know what? Maybe I can actually take out Peter the Great completely, and he started his doomed march into the interior of the Tsarist Empire. And of course, one of the most famous that Andalusians still are celebrated widely today is, of course, the Battle of Poltava, which was decisive yeah. victory for Peter the Great in the Nordic War. Yes, and then so the question, of course, is how if you decide to march on Moscow, which you know is typically a very, I mean, it's not impossible, obviously, uh, but it's a it's a very difficult uh, enterprise in any historical age. Uh, so, like, why, how in the world do you end up in Poltava, which is, uh, you know, a smallish city to the uh, basically to the east of Kiev? Uh, so, so how in the world do you end up there? And the answer to that is that um, the Swedes made this kind of pact. Uh, with those Ukrainian Cossacks who were unhappy under the Russian rule, uh, that included the Hetman Mazepa, you know, very important character, who was you know very close to Peter the Great, um, was you know one of his top confidants, you know, even his friend. Some people would say, and, and this is really why, sort of like in later Russian history, this was considered to be like one of the most infamous examples of you know of high treason. Um, it was not just because like somebody revolted against the Tsar, you know, that happened all the time, but because uh, Peter thought that like, he could completely trust um, uh, Mazepa, like, like Mazepa was, no, he had his back basically uh, because they had that personal relationship that was, you know, pretty long standing. Uh, but in any case, so the Swedes thought that these Cossacks would revolt uh, and provide them with extra military force. And then they can, you know, take out Peter's, um, Peter's capital. So that, that kind of was the, was the premise. However, as uh, other invaders would find out, you know, including Napoleon and Hitler, the logistics is uh, kind of the most important issue uh, when invading that part of uh, Eurasia. Uh, and that was hard enough in the 20th century with you know, trucks and railroads and airplanes. And it was really difficult in, in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. uh, and so basically, uh, Charles's army just kind of melted away. Um, gradually until it had you know, a pretty small core of you know very good fighters, but there were few of them, and they lost uh, pretty much the entire artillery, uh, and uh, they actually, the, that Ukrainian support that they were promised didn't actually materialize. Only Mazepa with a few thousand Cossacks joined him in that battle. Moreover, Peter intercepted and destroyed like a major supply convoy that was sent uh, from, you know, from Poland, uh, or you know, across that part of the world to 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 join and resupply uh, Charles. Uh, so so that so the Russian cavalry you know surrounded and destroyed that convoy. And so at Poltava, it was almost like you know a slaughter of the innocents in a sense, because this what was left of the Swedish army was you know they were good fighters, but there were so few of them, they were so tired, they were so badly supplied, uh, they were just kind of um, they were basically wiped out. Um, mm -hmm. If, if that's kind of to make the long story short. 
And of course, later Charles XII would try to invade Norway, in a, but he would end up being shot at Frederick Stens fortress. Yes. So it's his life did end in a tragedy. And it's not so. I'm not sure if he would have won the battle if he had survived, but he did end up getting shot near right. Frederick Stens. But of course, we yes. have to move on, and we have still we still are repeated Brady almost an hour in. So let's <laughs> talk about the next big thing, which is founding of Saint Petersburg, as we mentioned earlier. Yes, absolutely. Um, so well, I mean, what what I probably want to say, and this just kind of like is going to warm us up, and just let me know where you want to take this. Yeah. But there is a myth, probably the biggest myth, about the founding of Petersburg that still exists in in Russia and definitely in Europe. Uh, that it was basically just a bunch of uninhabitable swamps and forests. You know, like nobody lived there, right? Uh, horrible climate, an empty land, and uh, and Peter the Great brought you know hundreds of thousands of slave labor- laborers who just built him this majestic city out of nowhere. Uh, and that's really, uh, I mean, it's highly misleading um, in, in every possible way. Well, first of all, uh, one one way in which it's true is that the place that Peter chose to build a city was a very bad, I mean, it was a very bad location. Um, there was a, like literally half a mile up uh, the river, the river Neva on which St. Petersburg sits. There was a small Swedish town called Nienschans. Uh, and Nienschans was, you know, a perfectly nice and comfortable little town with, you know, markets and churches and uh, forts and things like that. Uh, and uh, there were farms, uh, there were estates that, you know, most of them belonged to various Swedish nobles. Uh, there were trading communities. Um, uh, and and, and there, so there had been reasonably comfortable human habitation there for, you know, as long as there'd been, you know, there'd been any kind of organized life on that part of the world. And before the Swedes, there were the Russians, uh, so-called Ijorians, the, the sort of a particular kind of group. Well, that was allied with Novgorod, uh, Novgorod, the Northern Empire. So, so in other words, like there was life, there was civilization, there was farming. It's just the problem was that, that Peter the Great built his town in the one spot where you really shouldn't build a city, like the one spot that got completely flooded <laughs> every few <laughs> years. Um, so, but they literally took Nienschanz apart and basically built a city just a little bit down the river. Mm. Um, that's what they did. You mentioned flooding, and of course, we will mention this in, in the next episode when we come to Alexander I. And one of the ba- yeah. one of the things that is I want to mention it now as well is that when it comes to the flooding, is that it was would become a myth that there was a bad omen, and especially under Alexander I, I believe, there were mm-hmm. some floodings that meant it felt like he, he was bad luck or something. I think as the story yeah. goes under him as well. So as as we will see in the next episode, flooding was would become a problem for St. Petersburg later on in its history as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, that's true. That That's going to be kind of a big part of the uh, imperial, later imperial myth, but even in the Soviet myth, because there was another great flood in 1924, the year Lenin died, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but going back to Peter the Great, um, so so in retrospect, you know, it's not particularly surprising, um, and it's a little surprising that he wanted to make that city, you know, that important. Uh, but the idea of building a capital, first of all, on the outskirts of your uh, empire, you know, it was pretty normal. Actually, it was pretty normal. If, look back at the, you know, say, I don't know, late Roman Empire, right? So where was the capital of the late Roman Empire? It was in what today is Milan. Right, and later on in this other town, Ravenna, basically right next to where the barbarian invasions are coming from. So it was a very normal thing. 
Um, in terms of the northern Europe, the idea of building your city in the middle of uh, this kind of swampy area, well, it was okay. Stockholm was in a similar circumstances. You know, what today is Helsinki uh, was in the similar circumstances. Uh, Copenhagen, definitely, right? Highly unhealthy places full of malaria and other diseases like that. So, so it's really um, the, the idea of sort of security and uh, having easy access to communications, you know, was much more important than the fact that, you know, your population is going to die out of cholera every now and then, right? Um, so, yeah, so so he did this and, and it was a very cleverly chosen area, you know, before, you know, before we have those 21st century, you know, cruise missiles, you know, it was pretty much impossible to inflict any serious military damage. Uh, on um, you know on that sort of that outpost of Russian power. If you look at the map, right, it's mm. you know surrounded by very thick forests. So it was actually a very cleverly uh, chosen location. Uh, but even from the sea, uh, it was extremely difficult to invade, um, just because uh, navigating the Gulf of Finland was so so difficult, uh, and it's even more difficult now, of course, uh, when the ships are bigger. So it was basically an area pretty much immune to invasion, uh, and an area if you staged an army and a navy, you could basically threaten all the Baltic. Um, so it was very, you know, very, very strategic. Uh, but there's more than the strategy that went into it, and it's this uh, sort of emotional, um, uh, sort of uh, symbolic project of building this kind of paradise city, uh, sort of the special pet. Uh, kind of like pet um, or kind of activity that, that Peter was engaged with. I think that's kind of like what building Petersburg was also very much about. It was not the first city that he built from scratch, though, and uh, that's kind of funny, too. The very first one was the town of Taganrog on the Sea of Azov, which you know has been in a lot of headlines recently. So, so this kind of notion that we're going to build a city on some kind of, with some kind of sea access and it's going to be a special example of city building. You no know, special. You're going to reorganize your life. Are you going to bring in, in people from other parts of your empire? You know that was very much sort of a way of thinking at that time. And now I want to take a second to talk about his love life as well, because of course first he does get married early on, but it's not a happy marriage. But the dude produce one son who's whom I want to focus a little bit on. Which is yeah. Peter the Second or Alexei Petrovich, who would become rather a disappointment. And he, of course, you can kind of understand him, Peter the Second, as yes. well, if you will call him that, because you know, growing up with a father such as Peter the Great, it's gonna be a lot mm -hmm. of expectations for you, and yes. it doesn't seem especially, and a, a especially bright himself as a son, mm -hmm. and he didn't really seem to be interested in learning mm. so and it's a rather a tragic story i think because he does try to escape from his father mm -hmm. as well and it would almost mm -hmm. end up in the execution of yes. or what people say is the execution by peter the great so uh, that, that's what it seems like uh, yeah. that's what it happened my actually my colleague here at yale uh paul bushkovich has written probably the best study of peter the great that exists out there and he has a sort of detailed history of the alexey affair um, so yes, indeed. So Peter had basically, you know, he had a sequence of lovers. Um, but the most important thing to remember about sort of sex life of emperors and empresses, uh, which you know, popular histories, even no, no, excellent popular histories like that of Montefiore, you now they spend a lot of uh, a lot of um, efforts on. 
really important to remember that for people like Peter the Great, you know, sex was not just sex, right? Mm. So, so in other words, like who uh, you're, it's not just the dynastic reasons of who you're married to and who you're allied to, but also what kind of public image uh, you want to project, what kind of lessons you're going to teach to your subjects. And it's very, very, uh, very important. And so the Peter's first wife, uh, 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 Natalia uh, Lapuhina, was, um, uh, you know, was just part of the old Muscovite nobility. And, and that was kind of like the real foundation of Peter's power. Uh, but, no, that alliance you know, didn't work out very well, as we all know. And so Peter's second wife was, and then people are still sort of Catherine the Catherine the first, as she would become known after his death. Uh, people are not like completely sure about her background. It seems like she was from what today is Estonia, uh, most likely a prisoner of war. Most likely she was, you know, enslaved and kept as a uh, basically as a mistress for by you know Peter's. Um, uh, Peter's kind of favorite statesman, Menshikov. And then, you know, Peter decided to you know, take her over and marry her. Uh, this whole idea of the Tsar, you know, this you know, kind of God-given monarch of this vast Eurasian empire, you know, marries this essentially just kind of a complete nobody, right, who's not even a Russian. Um, you know, it was kind of a big deal um, uh, and uh, kind of projects a certain image uh, of you know of your emperor you know your tsar uh, kind of imposing his will on his subject but but also on his subjects but also uh, just kind of like demonstrating his sort of engagement with uh, his new subjects right with these newly won provinces now there is some debate because as you mentioned she came from a slower background she was a slave essentially and there is some debate because, you know, she didn't really have much choice in the matter, really, when she met Peter the Great. So mm -hmm. is it, was, there is some debate whether she loved him or not, due to, that she actually did, that she just, just more or less pretended to love him. Do you, do you agree mm -hmm. with this, that she just did it to, for her own survival or for her own benefits, to put it that way? Right, well, I mean, it's kind of a difficult question without you know, asking her. Uh, I'm... I mean, I think we 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 have to sort of assume pretty safely that she would rather not be enslaved by the mm -hmm. invading army. Uh, but also, there is you know there's some evidence. Um, so the way I understand it is that at least you no, know, she had a pretty decent uh, relation with Peter the Great, uh, especially you know because it wasn't just something an alliance that you know would last a year or two and then you would move on to different mistresses, right? Um, you know, it was a very much. I'm trying to remember exactly what year. Uh, that they got together, but like by, say, by the time of the Battle of Poltava uh, and uh, that kind of time period, 17 or 8, 17 or 9, like, like they had children together by that time. Um, so, uh, so it wasn't a very, very long relationship. And, you know, they were still married uh, when Peter the Great died, uh, even though, of course, there were all these scandals, right? Supposedly she had an affair um, with one of Peter's officers. But uh, but but nonetheless, it seems like I mean he had several affairs. Even with Mistress, yeah. she picked herself oh, yeah. for him, so he did. Yeah. He did have several affairs himself. Of course, it? but it, of, of course, course because he's a man, it didn't yeah. matter as much as when she had an affair. Absolutely, and you know, for all of the Romanovs, at least uh, you know the Roman of Romanov women, at least. 
uh, who had been, you know, married, uh, you know, unlike Catherine the Great, for example, um, you know, that, that there was this double standard. Uh, but that double standard, you know, changed over the centuries. For example, Alexander I's empress, um, empress, his wife, um, Maria Alexandrovna, you know, she supposedly had affairs with men. Uh, and that really wasn't, um, you know, she was never, the, I think her boyfriends had suffered um, to some extent, but uh, she herself didn't, but we can talk about it next week. Uh, uh, but but yes, of course, Peter had a very uh, kind of a wild personal life. Uh, but the, the point I'm trying to make, I guess, is that Catherine the uh, first very firmly became not just simply, you know, a sleeping partner. Um, but she was very much part of Peter's establishment. So in other words, you know, she was part of the power structure and there was a big reason why she was proclaimed the ruler as soon as Peter the Great died. You know, it wasn't just because she was a convenient next candidate, but like because she was firmly kind of involved. She does rule mm -hmm. for a little bit after his death as well, doesn't she? So let's yeah. talk about yes. her life after Peter the Death's first mm -hmm. death, because we did have a lot to cover as well, as I mentioned. So let's talk about her brief rule. And of That's course, her... one of the one of what I want to add as well is that Peter also had the Order of Catherine, I believe, which would become yes. an essential medal for you know soldiers all the way up to the end of the Sarovich. Sorry, well, sorry, sorry, I believe. Sort of. It wasn't quite. It wasn't actually for soldiers. It was a uh, uh, an order. Uh, so, so the order for soldiers under Peter was known as the Old Order of Saint Andrew. Uh, but that's you know that will take us too far apart to discuss this. So the Order of Catherine was established when um, after uh, 1711 when Peter attempted to invade the Ottoman Empire, after he defeated the Swedes, he thought, huh, now I can really, I'm, you know, I'm a really great warrior now. And so he thought, okay, now that the Swedes are out of the picture, I'm going to go and invade the, the Turks. So he invaded, and that didn't really go very well. Uh, and the only way, reason why the Russians were able to get out of the, that part of the Ottoman Empire they invaded, today known as Moldova, was because they bribed the, the, the Turkish uh, general uh, or the vizier, I guess, who was leading the Turkish army. Uh, and supposedly the legend goes that uh, Catherine, who accompanied Peter in the campaign, and her court ladies donated all the jewelry to basically like provide provide the bribery funds. Mm -hmm. And supposedly to repay Catherine for her sacrifice and her basically support, and more about this in a moment. So so Peter established that, that order of St. Catherine that was until the end of the empire, awarded to basically aristocratic ladies who did, you know, something outstanding, like, you know, amazing charity work or something like that. Uh, but but it's, it's really actually, it's, it's very not a trivial point at all, uh, because even the literature, for example, about early, kind of like American exploration, um, basically early, say like early culture of Atlantic slavery, right? So any kind of part of the world in 16th, 17th, early 18th century where, you know, life is very dangerous. There are a lot of illnesses, a lot of diseases, uh, bad climate. Uh, basically, the only way you could have an army in those kind of conditions was like if you had a bunch of basically, you know, women uh, and other kinds of followers who were not armed, who were basically helping the male warriors survive. I'm trying to sort of make a complicated point here, but it's very important. So it wasn't just Catherine was providing moral support. It's like to have these kind of non-combatants with you in the kind of steps of next to the Black Sea, it was a matter of survival. 
very important. So, of course, Catherine rules for a little bit, and of course, her successor is Anna. And that's also that she is rather an understudied part of Roman yes. history, I think. And of course, she would, as Montefiore described, it's a while since I read the book now, but of course, as he described Anna, she was rather a cruel person, mm-hmm. but she was a competent ruler. And it's part about wars in in the Roman of Palace, but she would as well be surrounded by dwarves as well, and she was rather Absolutely. cruel to them, I believe, as mm-hmm. well. So she, let's talk about the rule of Anna for a little bit. Yeah, so like the basic, um, well, a couple of basic things. One is, uh, if you just want to get a get basic flavor for what yeah. it was like, um, people describe it, you know, other historians describe it as a Baroque, Baroque culture, right? And so, um, like in case you know people don't have the immediate understanding of what baroque is it's just an artistic and cultural movement in the early 18th century you know we have like you know for example bach's music right vivaldi um so so we have like ornate beautiful forms very sort of complicated architecture and painting but also we have these really sort of strange ideas about you know entertainment right and having fun uh, that we just discussed earlier and uh her world, Anna's world, was still very much this kind of part of the Baroque culture where you uh, assemble curiosities, right? Um, so so in terms of her personal life um, and her intellectual outlook, I mean, yes, she wasn't any kind of big intellectual, let's put it this way, uh, you know, compared to you know Peter the Great, who was uh, you know, very, not particularly educated, but an important, but a, an, an intellectual guy. Uh, in I'm sorry way. for disturbing you again, because as we should also mention, I'll go back a little bit before Anna's succession, and that Peter, because of the death of Peter II, or Alexei, Peter, Peter Alexei, we should mention mm-hmm. that Peter had no male heir in succession, and there was really, at this point, women weren't really allowed to rule Russia, so mm-hmm. what Peter did was he issued a decree that Anna would be the one to succeed that females could, in in, in rare necessity, have succeed on the throne of Russia, which would be the case right. basically up until Catherine II, and we're going to end this episode. Well, uh, right. Well, I mean, it wasn't. I, I gotta, I gotta sort of change that right. story just a tiny bit. So, what Peter the Great did is that he basically said that a ruler can designate his own heir, which is kind of that was the law of succession. But, however, he himself died. Before he was able to designate an heir, mm. right? Uh, so, so, so basically, the sort of so his wife basically came to the throne because you know the imperial guard put her on a throne. Peter the Great did have a grandson, Peter the Second, right? Mm. However, he was very young in 1725 when Peter the Great died, so they wouldn't put him on the throne. But after after Catherine the First died in 1727, that's when Peter the Second became the Tsar. And so he ruled for like three more years. And again, I don't remember what he died of, like smallpox, I believe. I believe. Uh, he was, you know, again, very, very young. Like he wasn't exactly promising to be the worst Tsar or the best Tsar. He was okay, but like he was just a teenager, right? Mm. So, and then, and that's when we get to Anna, the whole Anna Ioannovna affair, because again, Peter II dies. He's a teenager, obviously doesn't name an heir. So it was really, again, up to the aristocracy to figure out who's going to be the next Tsar. And basically, by that time, there were two options, okay? One option was uh, Peter's daughter, Elizabeth, or Elisaveta, mm. who would later become the Empress after all. Uh, 
but she's one of the candidates. The second candidate is Peter the Great's niece, Anna, who was married to the Duke of Courland in a small area in what today is Latvia. Latvian part of Lithuania, but mostly Latvia. So uh, living this kind of completely uneventful life, you know, in a small palace, you know, probably a comfortable life. But she would never dream that she would become the Empress of Russia, right? And so these boyars, or rather, I mean, they didn't call themselves boyars. Imagine anymore. the reaction coming out, hey, you will be the new Empress of Russia. Yeah. Yes, that, that's pretty well documented. However, that offer came with conditions. And I mean conditions... Uh, which were basically that Anna's power would be severely limited, that she would make no major decisions. She wouldn't even be able to commission army officers above the rank of, I think, colonel. Uh, and definitely you know, no major reforms of any kind without the agreement of the so-called Privy Council. So, you know, it would be, if that system had stuck, uh, Russia would be run more or less like 18th century England, probably, mm. where basically you know, the few aristocratic families called the shots. Uh, however, uh, there was quite a big reaction uh, back you know, in Moscow. At that point, the court was hanging out in Moscow. There was a big reaction when people found out. Uh, they thought it was basically a coup of sorts by top aristocracy at the expense of, you know, wasn't you know had nothing to do with democracy. It was not at the expense of the people. It was at the expense of you know small aristocracy, like you know your rank and file generals, uh, landowners, officials. So we're talking whether Russia was going to be ruled by say top ten people in the country, or by top five hundred people in a country. Okay, and so the top five hundred people, sort of putting putting it very uh, very briefly. They decided they're better off just kind of uh, putting all the official power in Anna's hands, so that she could like you know mediate the disputes and um, basic kind of these kind of mid-level guys would have more say in the system. So like, does that make any sense? Because it's kind of like a complicated. Some people say proto-constitutional affair. Almost uh, almost where... constitutional, like you said. It's almost not just what England will become. It's almost almost that she was a constitutional monarch. So like, uh, but except that she tore up the conditions uh, mm. when she found out that that basically rank and file and ability and the imperial guard, you no, know, they didn't trust the aristocrats, uh, and they didn't want them um, to be basically. So so they were. I mean, that's pretty reasonable. If you put yourself in the shoes of somebody living in the 18th century, like, would you rather have to uh, keep happy just one person, one tyrant, or a dozen tyrants? Mm. That was a brainer you know like mm. whatever you do like would you rather satisfy like a dozen people or just one person who wasn't even you know wasn't all that power very hungry from the looks of her mm. whereas like menshikov and dolgarukov and these kind of families like people knew what these people were like you know they embezzled on an astronomical scale and everybody knew exactly how russia was going to be governed mm. see what i'm trying to say so she, but she doesn't rule with her very long. But what I find fascinating about this period is that Elizabeth, or Elizabeth, if, for the Westernized name, that she was, she did fare for her life essentially in during that period because there is was talk about that she was going to do a coup d'état against and Empress Anna, but she doesn't go through with it. 
But she, there was talk that she should do a coup d'etat against her. Uh-huh. So uh, this sort of last bit that you said got cut that, off. That, that's Elisabetta was oh, going okay. to do well, a coup d'etat against sure, Empress sure. Anna, but she didn't go through oh, yeah. there. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, there were I mean, there were sort of a, several attempts to uh, sort of to to um, kind of seize power one way or another. There was the so-called Lapuhin affair. So like there were several aristocratic uh, clans that were kind of trying to rearrange the power structure. Um, now look, ultimately, I think you're absolutely right. Anna's reign is understudied. Yeah, it is clear uh, as the sort of one historian who looked at it in detail and they put it in one sentence. It was really important that those kind of innovations in uh, institutions uh, of imperial Russia, in the symbols, in the way sort of the court was run, and the way um, aristocrats presented themselves, it was clear after Anna has reigned that like there was no going back to say the 17th century system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like there was no way that Peter's legacy was going to be, you know, discarded. Right, that makes sense. Now, now in terms of Elizaveta and uh, being her, being this very kind of a vivacious, right, attractive, uh, lively um, daughter of Peter the Great, um, yes, I mean you're absolutely right. Like this kind of myth of like Elizaveta being the daughter, meaning somehow being the guardian of Peter's legacy, that all appeared on the Anna, and Anna was highly suspicious of Elizaveta, and whether there would have been a coup against her, I mean, it's not impossible. Except that, of course, Anna died uh, of kidney disease before we had a chance to find out. Now, of course, Anna Elisaveta, she does take over, and but but she doesn't have she not, sorry, she have a heir either, and that's one of the main concerns during her reign. So, how does, of course, Peter the Third come into her? Because he's born and raised. In Prussia and and the yes. other part of Germany, I don't remember if it's Prussia. But yeah. I, I want to go back to Peter Third as well because he's rather a tragic mm-hmm. story, I think. And mm-hmm. did, when you look at his life, you do understand how he ended up the way that he did. But let's talk about first. Let's talk about Elizabeth's reign sure. and her her rise to power. Sure, absolutely. So that that whole sequence of palace revolutions I mean, is known exactly as the era of palace revolutions. Uh, where the imperial guard that had been originally created by Peter the Great, you know, there were basically a few thousand soldiers, were kind of like this muscle that could uh, remove a ruler from power and replace him. And so kind there's of a like whole the secret... Praetorian guards so like sort of, yeah, exactly, right, like the Praetorian guard, exactly. That's a very kind of probably the best description of that. Uh, and so you had a whole series of, of these coups, and the one that put um, uh, Elisaveta on the throne was just, was not even the last one, right? Mm. Um, uh, but uh, but yes, I mean, basically, uh, the sort of, the sort of, the person who was officially uh, that Tsar after Anna was uh, was uh, was an infant, uh, Ivan or Ioan VI, uh, whose mother was uh, a niece to Anna Ioanovna. So it's like, we're talking about like remote, you know, reasonably remote relatives. Uh, and so these people, uh, uh, Anna's uh, remote relatives, they basically failed to uh, no, no, create enough of a following, whereas uh, I know there were pretty much newcomers to Russia. 
uh, and uh, Elisaveta had um, you know, had a lot of friends in the imperial guard and in the court, and had uh, a lot of assistance from the French, for example. It's kind of like a well-known diplomatic intrigue. Uh, the French ambassador was sort of uh, helping her out uh, very heavily. Uh, so yeah, so she staged pretty much a sort of a classic uh, palace coup. Um, she uh, rose up the imperial guard and had uh, uh, the the baby tsar arrested mm -hmm. and in prison, and his uh, father and mother exiled. Uh, very classic. But in terms of Elizaveta's rule, it's a uh, Again, we only have a couple of sentences to cover it, even though it was super important. But I want you to remember it as the reign during which, you know, Enlightenment, you know, it's not just came to Russia for the first time, but that's when Enlightenment uh, became entrenched there. So the sort of Russian aristocracy uh, and, you know, an educated class, you know, small but very important, you know, got accustomed to, you know, reading the latest intellectual bestsellers um, mm -hmm. that were coming out of France. Um, and, you know, to a less extent from other places in Europe, like whether it's Italy or Scotland, uh, you have the first university, you have the first Academy of Arts. Uh, so you have a, a whole sequence of important statesmen who are promoting, you know, promoting learning, promoting how, higher culture. Uh, so in other words, uh, Russia at that time is starting to acquire something of this like gilded almost fairy tale kind of look that we typically associate with imperial russia as opposed to this earlier kind of military camp kind of uh vibe that you get from peter the great and i do believe that elisaveta was very fashionable as well like she was very and she was very insistent that nobody was to wear a prettier dress than her and when she, i believe that she goes well at some point as well and then when she does worlds, no no one was allowed to have hair as well. So she shaved all the ladies in waiting and lady noble women of the court because she, mm. if she was bald, no one else no she if she wasn't allowed to have hair, no one else was going to have hair as well. So she was she was a mm. fashionable woman, it's needless to say. Uh so look, I wanna to be completely honest, I don't remember the balding story, but I wouldn't be surprised. If it was true, I believe this is from Robert K. Masson's biography of okay. Catherine the Second. I do believe that's okay. from where it comes from. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is that uh, a lot of this writing, uh, from from that that time period specifically, uh, whether it's Elizaveta herself or whether it's you know the poor Peter the Third that we're going to discuss mm -hmm. in a moment, you know, sort of like a lot of the writing comes from the the person's enemies, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so we have to like take it with a grain of salt. Now, now the yeah. one sort of important point historically that comes out of this is that rulers, you know, they didn't just like with the Peter the Great, you didn't just take a lover because you felt like taking a lover. You know, you didn't wear a particular dress because you liked fashion. Rather, like everything that these rulers did was this kind of like theatrical performance. It was this kind of like a theater of public life that was meant to project this kind of like splendor and power of the monarchy that that's kind of why they were doing this so mm -hmm. i hope that uh, i hope that, that that makes sense and then of course yeah. yes if if uh, elizaveta since she projected a particular you know feminine image you know she never pretended she was a warrior like you know catherine did for a little while uh or a lawgiver of any kind uh, you know she was um you know almost like she was kind of like the 
top lady in the court, right? She it was very it was like it was a very feminine image, but it was also the one that projected power. Like so, it's kind of like the best way to describe it. Um, a lot of things we usually associate with later with Catherine the Great and this kind of classical Russian Enlightenment, you know, came because there was the background for that set under under Elizaveta, just to put it this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably, you know, just one last quick thing to add. Again, I'll try to fit it in a sentence. Is that uh, even though uh, Imperial Russia became part of this tightly knit sort of diplomatic system of Europe that existed in Europe at that time. It was under Elizaveta where Russia's participation in sort of various alliances and so on and wars became kind of like integral, right? So in other words, it wasn't just Russia would sometimes choose to do this and not to do that. Uh, like, well, I could get involved in this war, I could stay aside if I wanted to. So under Elizabeth, it wasn't really an option anymore, like Russia was just completely enmeshed mm. in this kind of system of relations. Mm. And of course, again, the problem with that, with the success, she had needed a succession as well, and she didn't have yes. an heir. So how did she find Peter the Third? Because and I want to bring, before we go into it, I want to bring up this mother had a rather tragic, tragic story because she, the yeah. story goes, I believe, that she was standing outside the window in the cold and some servants said, you should close that window. You're going to get a cold. And she says, I'm a Russian there. I'm used to the cold. But she, in the end, she does end up having a cold and she dies from fever, I believe, because she, is, uh-huh. because she didn't close the window. So the story goes, I believe. So I don't really remember the specific story of her particular, just how exactly she died. Like, yeah, I mean, something like that, I seem to recall. But uh, what what sort of, I think, uh, in terms of succession, what's important to know is that, I mean, she had illegitimate children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but... I was talking about Peter the Third's mother, right? Oh, 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 Peter not the Third. Well, not Elizabeth, well, Peter oh, you said okay, okay. Yeah. Well, 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 well. In terms of like why she chose Peter the Third is that like she specifically decided not to marry. I mean that was her decision officially. You know she had you know lovers and so on, um, but basically Peter the Third was um, her nephew. He was um, he was the grandson of Peter the Great. So Peter the Great had another daughter Anna who was married off to a German ruler of Schleswig. Schleswig-Holstein, uh, a tiny uh, German principality that you know borders with Denmark, uh, and uh, so Anna was married off to its ruler, and so uh, the future Peter III was basically this kind of German princeling uh, who got plucked out of his comfortable uh, North German life and you know brought to Petersburg you know a few years before Elizabeth's death, Elizabeth's death. And he was basically kind of like groomed to be the heir to the throne uh, and also provided um, uh, with a wife, uh, uh, also a German princess, uh, Sophie Augusta Frederike uh, mm-hmm. of Anhalt Zerbst, uh, who was uh, going to be Catherine the Great. Uh, and Elisaveta basically, you know, very consciously like prepared and groomed them to take over after her death. So it wasn't some kind of big tragic story of succession. You know, they were there were years and years and years to sort of educate and prepare these people. But Peter III's life, I think, is rather tragic and his suffering because his mentor was rather cruel to him as well. 
and they didn't really have a happy upbringing as well, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, in the sense that this was, you know, this was still the mid 18th century, and uh, just like our idea of what royal comforts were, uh, don't necessarily, you know, fit the situation. You know, children, even royal children, were beaten, mm. and a lot of people were unhealthy. Mm. I mean, uh, I mean, to pick yeah. an example, Frederick the Great was in prison and beaten, and I believe, I believe, tortured by his own father. So, it, not much fatherly love there, to put it that way. And this was the Hanoverians; they hated each other much yeah. as well. So, and it wasn't uncommon in Europe at the time. Of course, that they did not go very well along, and of course, in the Ottoman mm -hmm. Empire, you had Bayezid II, I don't believe. No, sorry, Salim the first killed is presumably killed his own father. So this, there wasn't, like you said, it wasn't common yeah. at the time. Yeah. So in other words, this kind of scenario that a dynasty, dynastic life, court life, is a place of you know happiness, tranquility, comfort. Like that's supposed to be like the most comfortable place to be in your empire. You know, that's not at all the case in the 18th century. But look, Peter the Third had all the time in the world, you know, he had years and years to uh, recover from this uh, earlier trauma. Uh, one thing I want to point out is that uh, there's a very, um, you know, very readable uh, and uh, entertaining source um Catherine the Great's, you know, own uh, memoirs, right? Uh, that 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 no, we basically judge Peter the Third and that kind of history of Catherine's coup mostly ba ba based on those memoirs and uh, and since you know she had her husband popped off basically it's not surprising that he's uh, represented as basically almost like mentally handicapped kind of uh, juvenile not serious not intelligent basically really a pathetic creature. Uh, however, sort of historians who actually looked at things that Peter the Third, you know, said and did and things he was interested in, you know, they get a very different uh, picture. I mean, indeed, he's uh, he failed to, you know, form sort of a power structure of his own, but you know, he was a you know very well educated uh, and intelligent person who had some really great reform ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, to give you only two very small examples, um, after a long renovation, his tiny palace. Uh, just outside of St. Petersburg, you know, is now accessible to the public. Uh, and, uh, we, you know, I visited it a few years ago, um, and that included, well, they attempted to basically reconstruct his art collection that was housed in that um, in that area. You know, much of it has been lost, of course. Uh, but basically, uh, the sort of people who reconstructed the palace, they kind of tried to create the regional furnishings to the extent that they could. Uh, and basically, yes, Peter III had a very keen sense of appreciating contemporary art. He was a very highly cultured uh, person. Uh, and so when you get, like, reading Catherine's memoirs that, you know, Peter was, you know, torturing rats for fun, mm. you know, it's like, even if it was true at all, remember, we're talking about the 18th century, and that's the kind of life where people could collect art, read Voltaire, and then also torture cats on the side. Like, that wasn't really anything extraordinary. Uh, and then the sort of a second example, you know, Peter only reigned, Peter III only reigned for uh, like about six months, I think. Uh, but he had this brilliant idea uh, to basically make uh, a military and state service uh, voluntary, non-mandatory for Russia's elites, mm. which was like a really a sort of a key reform, I would say probably the most important reform after Peter the Great. So in other words, there was this kind of class of uh, you know landowners, officers, nobles 
mm. who until then were required uh, to basically, as long as they were capable of riding a horse, you know, they were required to serve. Mm. Uh, and then after they became old, they would be like allowed to maybe have an easier job, right? Uh, and so uh, Peter the Third came up with this idea of creating this basically kind of like a real, you can almost call it gentry, not a quite aristocracy, but a gentry of, you know, private individuals who would be allowed to kind of live on their estates in a countryside and kind of create this kind of like basically new society of private property owners who would govern their peasants, um, you know, collect art if they felt like it, serve an army during wartime and so on. So really, really a crucial reform. And of course, we should mention as well that at the time you succeeded the throne, I believe they were in the war that they were winning Russia against Prussia and yes. that didn't appear not Russia, Prussia. But he, Peter, of course, naturally growing up in Germany, he was a Germanophile. And of course, he adored everything in Germany. So he even a portrait. I believe, was it Frederick the Great who was ruler at the time? I'm, yes. I don't remember exactly, but he had yes. a portrait of him, I think. And he made him immediately peace. And of course, as we will discuss in the next episode, this did have an impact on both his son, Pavel, or Paul, if you will. And of course, Alexander as well, who made an alliance yes. with you know, Prussia in his rule. So his Germanophile did have an impact on later rulers as well. So let's talk about how he began with peace with Prussia and how, how this happened. Yes, absolutely. So this is basically an absolutely correct story. So Russia was indeed, you know, part of Elizaveta's diplomatic revolution was to get involved in this coalition uh, known as the diplomatic revolution uh, when Russia became allies with France and Austria because until then France and Austria were bitter enemies, right? Mm. So, uh, so Russia gets involved in what was known as the Seven Years' War also, some people ironically call it World War Zero just because it was happening like all over the world, mm. right? In India, America, the Caribbean, and of course in Europe. And Russia indeed is successful in the battlefield and you know captures Berlin after a couple of years and uh, completely demolishes Peter the Great, uh, Peter, Frederick the Great's army uh, to the extent that you know, like Frederick was completely at a loss what he was going to do because. He was writing these kind of panicky letters um, to his family. Um, so Russia is highly successful, um, but indeed uh, Peter the Third, uh, as soon as he came to the throne uh, in the, sort of the next year after that, in uh, at the very end of 1761, um, the first thing he does is that he just uh, grants a truce to Frederick the Great without any conditions. And you know, by that time, just so you know. Uh, this area known as Eastern Prussia, uh, which uh, you know, Soviet Union would uh, acquire a part of after World War II, uh, but uh, at that point, you know, it was much bigger, right? Uh, it basically, you know, pledged allegiance to uh, Elizabeth Elizaveta, and that was kind of like the heartland of the Prussian monarchy. Uh, and so, if Elizaveta hadn't died, um, and because you know it's been under Russian occupation for several years at that point, and all of its nobility was kind of pledged allegiance, so just imagine like there would be like no German Empire, no rise of Prussia, because there would be no Prussia. Mm. Um, and that was a very very likely scenario. Um, however, 
Peter III was indeed a Prusophile, uh, but so were a lot of people in Europe. As I think like your previous podcast uh, pointed out, right, Frederick the Great was a cult figure Mm. in Europe at that time for all kinds of reasons, right and wrong. Mm. Uh, And uh, so in part because of that kind of aura, in part because Peter III, as many rulers do, when you come to the throne, you try to do the opposite of what your predecessor has been doing. So yeah, so he takes Russia out of the war, and this was like literally the salvation to the Prussians, you know, saved their uh, kingdom and ensured that there would be, um, you know, an important, uh, you know, important power. I mean, we can even say that even diplomatically speaking, that may not have been such a horrible idea to actually like preserve a powerful German state in the middle of Europe that would counterbalance, you know, the Austrian influence. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if the Russians had demolished Prussia, then Austria would be the only big boy in that part of the world, right? And so there would be like an Austrian empire on steroids, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would be a very different configuration, right? Um, so maybe Peter III wasn't quite as stupid to take Russia out of that war. No, uh, I'm sorry to disturb you again, but Pete, what, 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 what is as well when, when you mentioned the he does create an alliance, I believe, with Prussia, and and there's was talk, of course, before he died that he was going to invade Denmark. As and again, I'm going to point out to the Norwegian historian that I referred to earlier. He is he mentioned that it's possible that Peter was going to invade Norway because you know Russia is bordering to Norway. That is more realistic that it was Norway because it was a part of Denmark, Norway at the time that he was considered. So it was possible that it was. An invasion of Norway up in the north of Russia that he was referring to invade is not Denmark necessarily. Do you think? Do you agree with this? You mean I'm sorry. You mean when that Charles he, the... so you know as if you look at the map, of course Norway yes. borders with Russia in the north. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yes. it's it is before according to the Norwegian history and how he th- thinks that it was Norway because it was a part of Denmark Norway still until 1814. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That he was going to invade Norway and not Denmark because he's talking who, who about was? Peter the Third was planning. Oh really? Oh, 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 oh right. Denmark. Yes. So it was talking about him invading okay. Norway because it was part of you know Denmark Norway at the time. Uh huh. I see what you're saying. Okay, absolutely right. So in other words, uh, so Peter the Third comes from the Schleswig-Holstein dynasty that borders the Danes and it's actually weaker than Denmark, right? And so. Uh, what Peter the Third, but he was under he... Danish protection at the time, right? Right, and so what Peter the Third did is that he, he declared war against Denmark. Yes, absolutely right, because because Denmark was supposedly oppressing his homeland, Schleswig-Holstein. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, in terms of whether Peter the Third wanted to send his army to Norway, I'll tell you the truth. I haven't heard about that, but I wouldn't be too surprised. What I do know is that I mean, uh... it makes sense, right? Because it's just it's closer to Russia than. Denmark, you had to then go through the Baltics, right, to get to Denmark and just Holstein with the entire army. So it doesn't sound very logical, considering the distance between Russia and Denmark. And it, but yeah, the, Norway and the borders is closer, right? Yeah. So it does make sense. Uh, I see what you're saying. Uh, I'm just from what I know about how 18th century armies operated. Uh, I think it was just like physically impossible for. Mm. A Russian army to invade Norway by yeah. land, you know, it's just like, I mean, even in the 20th century, warfare in that part of the world, you know, like, look at most, 
like Germans didn't even cross the border, right? In that in 1941, right? It was like the only part okay. of it. Uh, just a tiny bit. Oh, right. right like yeah. The, very, very tiny part. But for the oh, most yeah, you're part, talking right? about Barbarossa, right? Yeah. yeah, like right. So in other words, in the 18th century, it was just mathematic physically impossible. Mm. Uh, but but I see what you're saying. I mean, I wonder, but they definitely wouldn't do it over land. That's for sure, mm. uh, because it was just it was just as impossible as say invading India, uh, in the 19th century, in the early 19th century. So, um, but another thing to remember is that like because Peter the Third only ruled for six months, mm. like they didn't get very far. Yeah, but you know, like they were making they were, they were making plans, but like yeah. it was all it was all academic basically. Yeah. But of course, one thing that have to be talked about as well, because they are, as you said, they are married nine years before Peter succeeded to the throne. But, you know, we should talk about succession as, again, succession becomes an important part because I believe he was sexually incompetent and he wasn't very interested in Catherine as well. Though, um, but you should mention as well that she does seem to be interested in learning Russian, that she does learn Russian fairly quickly and learn the history and you know talk, mm-hmm. learn the Russian culture she converts to Eastern Orthodoxy as I saw on the, this is a short story but you know mm-hmm. because in the end it's desperate kind of a desperation that it's almost approved that they go to Catherine and say you need to find a lover and this is so mm-hmm. the first of many lovers and what is coming into the picture picture which is Gregory Orla who will become an important part Yes. yes. Uh, I mean, there was a sort of a s- several uh, men early on in uh, sort of Catherine's sort of early life in Russia. There was also you know, Stanislav Poniatowski, who would be the last uh, king of Poland. Um, mm. So, so basically, okay. So, so first of all, like a lot of this is just kind of like a rumor and rhetoric, and um, I don't want to say hearsay, but uh, not exactly sort of necessarily trustworthy information in other words what i'm trying to say we're never going to know for sure you know who catherine slept or did not sleep with in those early years um what i think is important is for the first thing is that you're absolutely 100 correct is that she tried to like make herself liked by the russians to create a power structure you know learn russian learn russian tradition you're absolutely 100 correct on that in terms of peter's sexual dysfunction I mean, I, I did hear something like that too, that he had this condition, I think known as phimosis, that needed to be corrected surgically. Basically, uncircumcised guys mm-hmm. are known to have that. Uh, and um, uh, on the other hand, he's known to have had a mistress, so Varansova. Uh, and uh, that was also... Uh, so, so at least whatever condition he had earlier was corrected by the time he was killed. Um and and again, uh, taking a lover was a political act in the 18th century, right? So he took Varansova from an old Muscovite nobility uh, to kind of counteract Catherine, who was an upstart, you know, German princess without any rights to the throne, right? Mm. So he took Varansova to kind of uh, stick it to his wife, right, basically. And I think we should mention as well that when Catherine didn't have an heir, it was dangerous for her to be in Russia because she would could be disposed, thrown out, or yeah. she, it was dangerous if she didn't get a son or a successor for the throne, yes. right? Absolutely, but um, and and so there were all these rumors that uh, Catherine's legal son Paul uh, was, you know, not actually mm. a product of her official marriage, 
Uh, so Nalu technically, if you look at it, if you really was owner, it was the father wish, I think it's kind of makes sense, right? It's technically the dynasty ended with Peter III. Uh, so right. if you believe the story, uh, Erland, if you believe the mm. story, but I know that the, there are many, many portraits of Paul uh, and on every one of those portraits, he looks very similar to Peter III. Mm. So like the family resemblance is, um, you know, unmistakable. So unless all mm. of those portraits were doctored, um, and but there were a lot of pictures, right? So presumably at least like one of them would be would tell the truth like it would be difficult to doctor every single portrait yeah or at least like somebody would say look you know every single portrait of Tsar paul was you know changed to make him look more like his father like somebody would have said something like this so in other words like the, this kind of graphic evidence suggests that uh that uh Tsar paul looked very much like his alleged father his official father right mm. so now in terms of so so whether <laughs> Uh, so so what was the biological truth um i couldn't tell you but but that's what we do know hmm. so of course that's about talk about the disposal of peter the third and like yeah. you said it does it's the bloody to the towers it's pretty much bloodless when she decides that she is going to this is not going to end well for russia we need to do something and i need to be the new head of state so uh, I so the very first part of your sentence got clipped off, mm. uh, but it sounds like you're asking how Catherine decided. Yeah, to... um, yeah. What she was? Uh, what? How did she decide that enough is enough? I need to do something, and yeah, I'm going to become the head of new head of state. How did how did it come to this? And did she have? She must seem to have some support among the boyars and the oh yes and the aristocrats, right? So if she yeah. if she successfully pulled this off. Yeah, I mean, so they, they, by the way, they weren't known as boyars at that point, but they were descendants of the old boyar families who would now speak French and, you know, wear nice French fashions. But, but yeah, like their families were the old boyar families. Uh, it, she did, in fact, um, had all the good reason to expect that Peter III would, you know, get rid of her somehow uh, and, you know, replace her with uh, his girlfriend, Varansova. Uh, their relations were clearly not good at all by that time, you know, by the middle of uh, 1762. Uh, and uh, it's also clear that Catherine had be been planning a move for a very long time, uh, that there were, you know, officers in the Imperial Guard uh, that were, you know, aware of what was happening. Uh, and by the way, just so you know, the Imperial Guard itself, it's, you know, it's sort of top officers were from, you know, old and powerful families, but the kind of rank and file, they were still old families, but they were not like super wealthy. They were just kind of like this sort of conservative backbone of the monarchy. You know, there were guys who are like, yes, I can trace my family to the 15th century, but I don't have very much, my, my wallet is not as big as my name, let's put it this way. So like all these officers had a lot to gain, had, um, you know, their, you know, their, their, their patron Catherine, you know, gained the throne. Um, so, so, so there's a plan also is foreign diplomacy, uh, basically kind of Europe is famous for that because finally every European capital has a diplomatic corps, you know, ambassadors from all kinds of countries and they are, you know, actively involved in, you know, spying and plotting and bribing each other. Uh, and so there was, you know, the, the French were particularly active, um, but, you know, the French, the Austrians, the English, they're all basically like trying to see how this 
configuration of power was going to go in Russia. Uh, and the French ambassador, again, is particularly active there. Uh, so, yeah, so, so there is quite a movement, an organized movement against Tsar Peter. Uh, and obviously, you know, it was difficult to keep a secret like that at that time. So, um, you know, kind of everybody knows that something is in the air. Uh, and uh, probably the last thing that Tsar Peter should have done was to alienate the Imperial Guard by telling them, oh, yes, yeah, so you were fired fighting the Prussians and almost winning, or actually winning, and now you have to go on and march in Denmark, right? So it's kind of like the last thing you want to do. Um, so he basically failed to create this kind of um, base of support, sort of like a group of well-placed nobles who were uh, just kind of looking out for his interests. I mean, he tried to, again, his, um, there was a group of officials like the Varansov family and several others like it, like the Panyan family, um, you know, there was a group of officials that Peter was working with, but like he wasn't as good at it as his wife, like to make it short, basically. So arguably one of the biggest things to happen during Catherine II's reign, and again, to put it, you know, in context of what Putin says when he invaded Crimea in 2014, is that it historically, again, it historically belongs to Russia, which is it's really not, that long it belonged to Russia historically because it's just yep. until Catherine the from Catherine the Second, which is just two hundred fifty years ago, mm -hmm. that it has belonged historically, quote unquote, for Russia. So it's let's talk about what one of the biggest things under Catherine yes. I would say is of course the invasion of Crimea. And before before this, I want to go back a little bit because talk about the state of the Crimean Khanate, which it was called mm -hmm. at the time, which was under Ottoman Caesarianity. So let's talk a little bit just quickly yeah. about Crimea before the invasion of Catherine II. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's uh, if if Catherine the Great hadn't uh, taken over and destroyed the Crimean Tatar state, you know, it had all the like there the, there was sort of like all the indications that it would become like another. Sort of smallish kind of European, quasi-European state, uh, uh, because I mean, Crimean Tatars kind of went through various transformations, various phases in their long history. Um, uh, Crimean Hanat uh, appeared in the early 15th century and was actually originally an ally to the Muscovites. Uh, because the Muscovites and the Crimeans, they basically made an alliance to fight off the other Tatars, especially the descendants of the Golden Horde. Uh, however, for all the 16th and part of the 17th century, Crimean Tatars, they were basically like raiders and slave takers. And there's a, a lot of literature on the Mediterranean slave culture, and the Crimean Tatars essentially provided the Ottomans with slaves, with enslaved people. Um, at the same time, it wasn't just kind of like a uniform structure because on the one hand you had these trading cities that were under direct rule of the Ottomans. On the other hand, you had these kind of like old Crimeans, so to say, who were living in the Crimean peninsula. Some of them were engaged mostly in a trade, you know, some of them did a bit of a fighting, but basically it was a sedentary society, you know, with towns and uh, crafts and so on. And then finally there was this kind of like, um, Kind of like the outskirts of this kind of Crimean domain, some of them in the northern uh, sort of um, 
half of the peninsula that's very dry, very flat. Uh, and some of them lived in this area that where the fighting is taking place right now in, uh, in that part of Ukraine, uh, just north of Crimea. Uh, and these were basically more impoverished, but also warlike, um, you know, very good warriors um, and very sort of kind of happy to like raid and plunder their neighbors uh, kind of groups um, uh, that were later known as the Nogai, N-O-G-A-Y, Nogai Tatars. Uh, so essentially, when the Russians took over that uh, part of the Black Sea steppe, uh, the Nogai got deported uh, to um, sort of further east, essentially, and they're still living there, basically. Um, but basically, yeah, so so like you have these different groups, you know, some of them are sedentary, some of them are nomadic, uh, but overall Crimean Tatars were, you know, they were excellent warriors. Uh, in this kind of early modern world, they moved a lot quicker than any of their uh, any of their enemies, um, and uh, you they could provide a very large army that would appear out of nowhere, and basically demolish a particular region, and you know go back with all the plunder. Uh, and so there was a lot of bad bad blood between the Russians and the Crimeans for for many many centuries. Crimeans plundered Moscow a couple of times, plundered a lot of uh, other major locations in the early Muscovite state. Uh, but by the time you get to the 18th century, uh, European-style armies with you know muskets uh, and discipline uh, and cannon uh, basically made uh, the Crimean way of doing things um, no, no longer feasible, basically. Uh, right, uh, And so the Russians fought a couple of wars against the Ottomans, under Catherine the Great, and as a byproduct of those wars, they captured Crimea and officially annexed it in 1783. That's kind of like a, a basic story. Um, you now, can elaborate on that if you want. Hmm. I, unfortunately, I don't think we have time, but I want, there is something that I want to mention as well before we go to the next thing we've seen in Catherine's life, but there is this story that, now do we know where it originated, that she fooled around with a horse? That because there is some rather amusing story that she did, did have a sexual oriented sexual affection with that horse at one point. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. So that's a very famous story. And like pretty much uh, whenever Catherine the Great comes up in this kind of American context, somebody somebody asks about it. Um, I mean, I personally like don't think that that and I don't think like any serious historian thinks that she actually had intercourse uh, with a horse. Uh, so I think this was just uh, mostly British propaganda, basically. She had a little bit of an issue with uh, Great Britain during the American Revolt uh, towards the end of her reign. Um, and so there's a lot of this kind of anti-Russian propaganda that started to come out uh, in the you know, 1770s and 1780s. Uh, basically what some historians of the Enlightenment call political pornography. Um, was, you know, they, if you think that this is crazy, what they wrote about Catherine the Great, you know, things they wrote about Marie Antoinette were even worse. Mm. So, so it's kind of like a very typical um, 18th century product, honestly. Um, nothing really surprising. Um, but the, the big point to make here, though, is that um, popular histories of Catherine, like including one by Macy, no, they tend to just uh, focus on Catherine Locke as a woman, as if she was a 20th century woman, right? Uh, so I think that book is even called, right, Portrait of a Woman. Uh, so basically, like, yes, she was this like lonely individual on the throne, and she just like needed somebody to basically uh, 
kind of work through her stress, right? And uh, um, kind of keep her just a little bit happy uh, and less lonely. Uh, and I think uh, a more uh, accurate description of what he was doing is that you know, Catherine was very self-disciplined. You know, she was, again, like, we have to forget about English propaganda and uh, look at who she really was. You know, she was highly intellectual, super disciplined. Um, she And every single thing that she did, she did for a purpose including, you know, taking all these lovers. Uh, and, and obviously there's a lot of exaggeration there, uh, but it's clear that the earlier ones like Arlov or Patyomkin, uh, no, they were basically her partners. You know, she was even married to Patyomkin illicitly. Um, so, uh, so they were clearly her partners, whereas later on when she became older and the lovers became younger, it was more of like a political gesture. So these young guys were supposed to be like the paragons of virtue um like she was the lawgiver she was the ruler who changed her society to make it you know more orderly more prosperous right sort of more comfortable to live in and these guys these young guys who kind of were molded under her influence there were these kind of examples of what russia's upper class was supposed to be like like does that hope that comes across so she was doing everything she was doing was not because she was a lonely woman, even though she probably was, but she was doing this for political reasons, primarily. Well, let's talk about the lovers for a second. We're going to go into Katamkin in a second, but that's because so even though you were a lover of Catherine the Great, even as she got older, it can be quite exhausting as well, even though you were rewarded quite well. According to Massey, at least, it should, so it should be very exhausting though even though you can advance quite far in in a court or in military advances mm -hmm. when you were when you were a lover of Catherine. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and I mean um these these young men basically became uh at least the successful ones became incorporated um uh, into sort of the, the very top echelon of the sort of power structure in St. Petersburg and uh I'll be completely like if you told me to like rattle off the names of every single mm -hmm. of those of those so-called favorites, I, mean, I wouldn't be able to do it. But probably can. among but 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 probably among the sort of the sort of the later batch, uh, the most famous one was Zubov, Platon Zubov Z U B O V, who uh, and you know his descendants as well like became like very a very important family in the nineteenth century. Uh, they got, you know, married with a bunch of important families and so on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it was definitely, you know, it was, a, it was definitely a way for uh, somebody from a middling ability to just suddenly gain everything, right? Mm. Somebody like, basically, somebody who owned and served peasants at that time, you basically had to own at least 100 uh, to mm. be able to, like, live like a normal person, like like the other mm. class guys. Uh, and so, like, imagine if it's somebody who's just as basically making ends meet, like you have to serve in Petersburg and buy expensive uniforms, and your peasants, you know, sometimes pay their dues, sometimes they don't. Like, all of a sudden, like, you have everything, you know, villages with thousands of serfs, and, and all the generals are flattering you. It's so... It's quite like it's kind of like the change of fortune that Catherine's reign was famous for. So, of course, one of the most famous, imagine one of them, but arguably one of the 
most famous and Montefiore wrote about, about the relationship as well, which I highly recommend, is of course Fiotemkin. And mm-hmm. uh, well, of course, I'm, so that's how did he come into Catherine's life? And he would be, well, you just mentioned that he allegedly married. But then there is still some debate about did he really marry Catherine or did he not marry Catherine? Mm-hmm. Was it? But I think most historians seem to confirm that there was a marriage alliance there. So let's talk about the relationship of Catherine and Fiotemkin. Yes, I mean, I was looking up a Russian biography um, quite a while ago, actually. Uh, but I do remember that like people who try to look at like church records and things like that, like it seems like there was a church, you know, a, a secret marriage, a secret religious ceremony um, between Potemkin and Catherine the Great. Even though, of course, like I said, it was never made public. Uh, and uh, in terms of Potemkin, it's one of those just most amazing figures from um, from her era. Uh, one of those kind of like Enlightenment era statesmen. Um, even though he did come from a very kind of nondescript kind of lower gentry family. Uh, and his ascent was based completely on his support for Catherine's coup. Uh, or even like not so much of Catherine's coup as his friendship with the Arlov brothers, Orlov brothers, who were, you know, Catherine's primary supporters, right? And there were like mm-hmm. five of them. Uh, so, but, but, uh, yeah, it's good that you mentioned that book by Montefiore. It is, uh, his book on uh, Potemkin is very highly regarded, definitely a recommended reading. Uh, but Potemkin was this sort of extremely talented, um, administrator. So even after his personal relationship with Catherine, you know, like he wasn't living with her anymore, but he was kind of the driving force behind this whole colonization project in the South, uh, area that's became known as the new Russia, Novorossia, which again, like I said, <laughs> when, uh, this whole, uh, that when the Ukrainian events began around 2013, 2014, you know, that's when the term kind of got resurrected. But uh, New Russia basically meant territories to the south uh, and the southeast of this kind of Ukrainian core territory. So basically like what was historical heartland of the Ukrainian Cossack lands, basically if you look at the map of Ukraine today, that would be just basically the north, the very sort of north Kiev, Poltava, and Chernihiv, the three provinces, and everything else was basically under either under the still under Polish rule or everything to the south or to the east was under Nogai Tatars, basically. Um, so no, no, there's some nuances there that I'm going to skip for now. Uh, but essentially, yes, so the Russians under Potemkin and several generals uh, led a series of military campaigns that also involved the Navy sailing all the way around Europe and basically attacking the Ottomans from the Mediterranean side um there were there were so these there were these two wars and uh, the idea was to basically when they say new russia it wasn't just you know like oh it's a cute name you know they actually meant to sort of have a new economic and power center and the capital city of that is well today it's known as Dnipro. in the soviet days it was Dnipropetrovsk, one of the largest industrial centers in soviet ukraine and under under the emperors, it was known as Yekaterina Slav, meaning glory to Yekaterina. So Potemkin wanted to make it the new capital of the Russian Empire. And so for decades afterwards, you had this like really tiny town 
with this gigantic cathedral because like they built the city center but didn't have time to build the rest now of course one one another thing that is of course what that was a line designed to be against the ottomans is of course the habsburg versus alliance that was formed under Piotempkin and then Joseph II. And of course, this is a, another, you mentioned what, what the king of Poland as well, and he becomes kind of essential here as well, I think, because he is, helps to form the alliance. So, so let's talk about how the Russo Habsburg alliance with Joseph II mm-hmm. got started. Because, and again, this is where we get the famous Piotempkin scheme, where he supposedly arranged fe- several fake cities. All around Russia to impress Joseph II's envoys, right. and you know, of course, Odessa was formed as well as a modern town. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I believe it was a small settlement, but really, under Piotrkin, it became central yeah. part, and it still is an important city today. Yeah. So, let's talk about the Russia Habsburg, and sorry, yes, and the Russia Habsburg alliance. Of course, and it sounds like you're writing about your uh, reading about yours of the second right now. Right? So, <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes. So, uh, well, I mean, to begin with, actually, it's um, uh, this kind of um, partnership between the Russians and the Habsburgs actually like went way, way, way back into the early 16th century, even. Um, but you know, it wasn't the same as like you fighting the wars together side by side, which is what was happening in the 18th century. So, yeah, so I mean, that was a very kind of long, 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 uh, long standing sort of idea that basically the Russians and the and the Austrians uh, would fight together, you know, against the Ottomans as their common enemy, but also they would gang up to keep, you know, the Poles and basically the Northern Europeans in check. Uh, so, so that that, that was true. Um, but also the first half of the 18th century, um, it was this t- weird time period when the Ottoman Empire, you know, it was clearly not a spring chicken anymore, right? So in other words, militarily, it just wasn't performing as well anymore, but it wasn't quite as obvious yet, right? So in other words, it was still able to put together very large armies, you know, it had you know, a lot of revenue, um, it was ruling a sort of the seal of vast European empire, uh, and um, uh, so, so and even to the to the point when uh, the Ottomans were still kind of claiming, trying to retain uh, you know certain portions of what like even today is Ukraine, for example, uh, the Padilian uh, province. Um, it's like basically in, in southwest of Ukraine, just to the north of where Odessa is. So, so in other words, like there's still a very sort of important military confrontation. And even though the Russians are starting to gain the upper hand, uh, it was a lot easier to fight those kind of wars with allies, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still, remember, this is still 18th century. This is basically before there is such a thing as canned food <laughs> or understanding that, like, you know, you need fresh water. That's at least that's not contaminated. If you don't want your army to just die out, like I'm just trying to like explain it very kind of very kind of a uh, plain terms in the sense that uh, 18th early 19th century, you know, you start your campaign with I don't know 20,000 soldiers, and a few weeks later you're only going to have 5,000 because it's just like the conditions were just like so appalling and dangerous uh, that. Um, just being, you know, part of a European army with modern weapons, just like it was not enough yet. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so Catherine the Great and Pachomkin did, in fact, uh, 
form that alliance. And uh, in terms of the story of um, how Yozov visited these newly acquired Russian provinces, like, like there are sort of a couple of things there. One is, um, again, this is how 18th century operated. So like, of course, you would be expected to put together some nice decorations. Mm. Right. So like, yeah, I mean, of course, that's what you were expected to do. That's uh, you stage you know, fireworks and build mock villages. And um, th that's how people functioned. Uh, and it's also true that, of course, these this prosperity just wasn't there yet. So Catherine invited colonists from, you know, Germany, from basically all over Europe. You know, there were Serbs and Albanians and Greeks and Italians, um, lots of Germans who just invited to come and settle. You know, the Russian peasants were moved as well from the north and Ukrainian peasants. Uh, but at the same time, it would be really the 19th century one that would take off. That's mm. what I'm trying to say. But listen, but also the, you know, the ships that were in the harbor, that the Austrian emperor saw, like they were real ships. So in other words, like the first thing they did was to build a powerful Black Sea Navy that put the Ottomans out of action in a series of battles. So like some of it was true, some of it wasn't, but the Navy was real. And you know, the army was real as well. So, so I don't know if that's... Something else I want to talk about is, of course, and this was quite common in 18th century Europe as well, is that smallpox was ravaging the continent, and of course, not just the continent, but then the entire world at the time. And one of the things Catherine did was that she was pro-vaccination. She helped out with vaccination. So let's talk about small... There's a few things left I want to talk about before I go to end this episode. And one of sure. them is the smallpox epidemic in Russia and mm -hmm. how Catherine helps to help maybe not stop it, mm -hmm. but she did help digitally help vaccinate quite a lot of people, I think, from, from smallpox. Yes. Well Erland, I have to say like in the history of public health, I just know that it's important, but it's not mm. exactly you know my specialty what I have researched. I mean no yes, problem. I mean it's generally the knowledge that she indeed uh, uh, led the vaccination campaign that was very important. Um, it is well known that there was a plague revolt in 1771 and a plague epidemic that was kind of a big issue. Uh, and that these kind of events uh, basically created a lot of tension, a lot of pressure on the government and a lot of motivation to to basically like reform and reorganize the, uh, various government structures. Uh, because uh, and there were other examples too, like there was a massive revolt by Cossacks and sort of other groups um, under Pugachev in the, the 1773-75, um, get a major major um, event because the Pugachev claimed to be Catherine's dead husband, right? As yeah, everybody... yeah, I wanted to talk um, about that as well. Yeah. So, so like you know, just an important thing to remember is that like epidemics and the Pugachev uprising basically terrified terrified the upper classes. Like even several generations later in um, in the early 19th century, uh, like people still remembered it basically how like they almost died or like how they had to hide in the toilet because, you know, like the uh, Cossacks invaded and like they were going to kill them. Um, essentially, it's uh, the, the revolt was a kind of a borderland issue. You know, there were Cossack groups uh, in the Ural Mountains who felt they were being, you know, basically mistreated by the central government, which is true. Um, there was a host of other issues. There were various non-Russian groups 
that like the Bashkirs who thought they were you know, being mistreated by imperial authorities. Uh, Cossacks were also persecuted on religious grounds because they were all believers. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were actually, there were many, many Cossack revolts. It's just this one was really well organized. Uh, and uh, uh, Cossacks were at that point still, you know, like they were the real deal, you know, very powerfully, uh, well-trained, powerful warrior system. Uh, and uh, the the scary thing about it is that it wasn't just, um, they didn't just uh, limit themselves to hanging out in the borderlands, you know, in the Urals, and then what today is the north of Kazakhstan, and they actually try to march into the central Russia and try to, like, you know, get the peasants to revolt. Mm. Uh, and that's what really scared uh, the ruling classes. Something about, about, I'm sorry for this interrupting you again, but something as well as part of this in the, in the fake Peter III revolt is that, of course, as you mentioned, peasants were kind of seemed to be kind of pro on his side. Uh, but, and what we haven't talked about as well is that you know Russia was basically a land of serfdom still, though it had been abolished in several parts of Europe at this point. Russia was still heavily influenced by not influenced, but it was heavily populated by serfs. And you know Catherine, I believe she was playing with the idea of abolishing serfdom. But when this revolt happened, she was like, "They revolted against me. Why should I do anything?" Thing for them in return. So she was, I believe she was playing with the idea of abolishing, which of course wouldn't happen until Alexander is second, which we are going to talk about yeah. next week. But you know, it's, uh, she did play with the idea, I think, of abolishing the serpent. But when the Cossack revolt happened with the fake Peter III, she realized that if they are against me, then I'm not going to do, I'm not going to liberate them if they won't, you know, mm. go against me. Well, Ireland, I mean, to be completely honest, I'm not positive that this is exactly why she failed to abolish serfdom. I do agree with you that it probably would have been a really good idea to do it at that point, mm -hmm. right? Just because uh, when Catherine came to power, uh, like I said, her husband, Peter III, um, uh, basically emancipated the service class, and uh, Catherine confirmed that it would be really logical that because now the nobles don't need the labor of the serfs to care out and their mandatory service so now you should just you know emancipate the peasants and there were of course many many ways to you know keep the peasants uh, under control right um so in terms of why she didn't do it i mean the historians are still arguing about uh, uh part of it probably that she had her hands full anyway uh another you know there were a lot of wars and various activities mm -hmm. happening i mean my thing... argument seems i believe that this is what robert k and Massey's words that she meant that when they revolted, why should she do anything for them in return when they were against her? Yeah. I do believe this is what Maggie, mm -hmm. sorry, Massey seemed to think. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't think um, that's a very uh, strong argument, to tell you the truth. Um, mm. uh, so I think there were there were sort of, and with a solution like that, uh, with, a, with a big issue like that, there's not going to be one sort of simple reason. And Catherine was not a kind of state's woman you know statesperson who would be thinking in those kind of terms how do we know because you know a lot of her drafts and writings and letters and memos have survived and you know she was thinking very much ahead and uh she was a strategizing careful you know administrator and politician uh so so like there isn't 
I don't. I don't think that's why she failed to um, to abolish serfdom. Uh, I think she failed to abolish serfdom because uh, at first she was afraid of her power being too unstable. Uh, then she was busy with other activities, and then by the end of her reign, she, you know, she became slightly more conservative um, kind of ruler, uh, and uh, uh, and and more where she, you know, part of her big pro program, in fact, probably a cornerstone of her. You know, domestic activities was the idea of private property, right? Um, and just so we understand is that like now we seem to take it for granted. What does it mean to own something? Like, you know, I own this phone, right? Over here. Uh, which means, you know, I can destroy it or throw it out of the window. However, these kind of earlier ideas of property, you know, they were pretty complicated. And this notion that owning stuff is to have complete control over it, you know, it was actually a pretty new notion in the 18th century uh you see what i'm trying to understand uh, yeah. to and, so, and so catherine you know she was trying to create this a state of property owners in her nobility so she had this like complex social program she's going to have these provincial nobles who owned land and you know provided all the essential government services then she had the class of you know urban you know merchants and entrepreneurs and craftsmen who also owned property, but, you know, of different kind. And so the idea was that, like, after you build these two estates, you know, then you're going to work on the peasants. Mm. That's kind of what she was thinking about. So she wasn't going to create property owners and dispossess them immediately afterwards. Mm. So I think we're going to round it up there and talk about the end of Catherine's reign, because we, I think, we, we, I think we've been talking for over two hours now. So and this is just part one of the this series. So let's... Let's round it up with talking about the end of Catherine's reign. It's a great discussion, though, Erland. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like I said, you know, her she died years after the French Revolution had become right had begun. So the revolution began in 1789, and uh, Catherine died in 1796. So there is actually a separate and interesting kind of story of how she reacted. Uh, to that, because you know, Catherine was very much a product of the Enlightenment. She, you know, popularized, extracted, you know, works by and read obviously works by you know, Voltaire and Montesquieu and Beccaria. Didn't correspond with Voltaire, though she seemed yes. not to want him to come to Russia because she wouldn't feel yeah. kind of embarrassed, according to Massey, that she mm -hmm. he would be disappointed if he came to. But she did have a frequent correspondence with with Voltaire. Uh, yes, exactly. No, I mean, I think uh, uh, work by Isabel de Madariaga is a sort of a better introduction um, to uh, Catherine's um, Catherine's age, uh, her, mm. her reign. Um, uh, but basically, well, I mean, I think what, what you're alluding here is this, the, yeah, there's this general question. Uh, was Catherine a hypocrite? You know, what was she? Was she just trying to inculcate all these enlightenment values in her upper classes mm. whereas like underneath the surface it was all about power and maintaining control mm. over you know these poor insurfed peasants um so was she just a hypocrite or maybe she was a fool maybe she really did think you can have you know separation of powers and mm. and in liberties and uh, these kind of like almost mentally independent elites uh coexist with serfdom and that's kind of like a big question uh, and it seems like from what you're describing, Massey thought that like she was aware of the discrepancy, um, and and it's uh, and and it's a big question. But I think there's no doubt that she was a realist. 
Now, I don't think she thought she was going to produce, you know, the mm -hmm. sort of the age of uh, prosperity right away. Uh, but she, it, it is clear, though, that when the French Revolution started and, uh, you know, the king and his uh, queen got killed, um, she had a little bit of a scare and uh, cracked down on some of the more you know, radical figures who were beginning to emerge in Russia. She also ordered her top general, uh, Suvorov, uh, who would be later the bane of French revolutionary generals uh, in the end of the 18th century. She ordered him you know, mobilized and wanted to send him off to you know, fight, the, fight the revolutionaries. Um, so she was considering a military intervention. Um, but it was a bit of you know, a crisis of the Russian monarchy, like how are you going to deal with enlightenment values that just took this sharp radical turn? I think we're going to round up there. Thank you so much for coming on. We are going to talk next week about the reign from Paul I. And I'm most likely to call Pavel for, you know, because sure. it was, his name was in Russian and the Western translation is Paul, of course, but we're most likely going to call it Pavel until the reign of Nicholas II. So stay tuned for part two next week. Before you go, do you have any social media or any links you want to put in the description below or where can people find your book if they want to read your work that you have published so far? Oh, I'm sorry, are you talking about my current part? Yeah. So, well, I, I think it would be a perfect uh, subject to talk about next time when we discuss the great reforms because it is about uh, the middle of the 19th century uh, and how uh, power and government changed in Russia during the great reforms that including criminal justice and criminal law. And that's what I'm writing about right now. Thank you so much for coming on again. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed part one of our Romanov's miniseries. This has been about that age 12. We are available on Instagram, in Twitter, sorry, on social media. We are available on, let me correct that, on Instagram and Twitter under about that age 12. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you're on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a review. That will help us out a lot. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.